We want to go back to the first day that you quote unquote quit Hollywood. Mm-hmm. If you can remember that day. Do you remember some of the emotions that you were feeling? Yes, actually. So at this time, I was an actor, right? And it was just acting. And it was the plan A, I don't need a plan B. Either I'm going to make it or that's it, right? It very naive of me, but it, it, it got me a long way. So what happened was I was called out to this audition. And I drove from Orange County and I drove to this, to this casting. I forget where it was, but it was somewhere by the Universal Studios, if I remember. And I remember having this inner dialogue with myself. And I was like, all right, I'm going to go to this casting. This is going to determine. And I was like talking to God. I was like, this is the one. Either, either I, I book this and something happens or I'm done. And the sign on this day couldn't have been any clearer to me that at this moment in life, the universe was like, this is just not right for you. So I go to the lot. I said, hey, I'm here for a casting. I forget what it was for. And they're like, there is no casting. I said, okay. So I checked my email. The day is right. Everything is right. Last minute, the casting director changed the audition date to another day. So that was like a, that, that was as clear as it, as it was. And I was like, okay, I got it. I got the sign. I'm done. And in that moment, I kind of get goosebumps now talking about it. But in that moment, I was like, all right, well, this isn't for me. And there was so much time and effort where for that span of like going to auditions, I was almost a Power Ranger, um, always getting callbacks and never quite getting that defining role or or anything that could catapult me and mind you at the time this is what no one ever tells you i was in the one percent of earners in you know for like a, a good two to three year stretch but what you see on tv the brad pitts the you know leonardo's they're the one percent of the one percent so the one percent of being a working actor what is that? At the time, it was like $12,000 a year or something like that. And for a couple years, I was averaging like a solid like 40000 I was doing like for me, single guy, no wife, no kid. I was like, okay, I'm doing something. But in that moment, when I drove all that way, casting, they, they, it did a few things to me where a part of me almost like broke. Because it, the, the, I've never had a signal in my life just be so clear. It was just like, okay, this isn't for you at this time. So when that happened and that switch happened, I took a couple years off. But something inside of me, I didn't see the change that I wanted to see. So when I first went out to Hollywood, this was straight out of high school, no family, no friends, no money, nothing like that. I just left. And I told myself I would be the Asian Will Smith, right? And obviously, when you go somewhere, you do something, you want to be the the first you. That's always the answer you hear from somebody. Oh, I'm the first me. But you're always inspired by someone or something, and that's what kind of fuels you to do something. So at the time, it was Will Smith. And I was like, I want that career for myself. In hindsight... I wasn't ready for it. I thought I was. 
I thought I had the looks. I thought I had the personality. I thought I had the charm. But I wasn't ready for it. I was never a good auditioner. Uh, I would spend all this time, you know, going over lines nonstop that you go into the room and you think about the lines so much that it deteriorates the performance compared to just performing. And in hindsight, when I think about what I did wrong, because at the time you almost feel when you see colleagues that you've worked with and you see them doing well and you see them doing all these big shows that you auditioned for and you didn't get, and you see them doing you know, movies like Shazam and all this stuff, you, naturally you feel a certain way. But as you get older you be, and you mature as a human being, you become happy for their success because that, their success doesn't take away from your success. So when someone succeeds, you should always look at it from a place of, well, if they can do that, I can do that. And use that as an inspiration to kind of rocket you to do whatever it is that you want to do. You were 18 when you flew to Los Angeles. From where? Georgia. From Georgia. Yes. Okay. So you, even though you'd been raised somewhere else? Yeah. So I was born and raised in Hawaii. Um, but, you know, my goal was always to get out of the island. So my mom at the time lived in Georgia. So after my freshman year in uh, Hawaii, which was the school was Ka'al, it's Ka'al, K-E-A-A-U high school, uh, I moved to Georgia. And we thought, well, in Hawaii, there's a saying like, oh, if you want to better your life, you go to the mainland. So my mom was in Georgia. So I stayed with my mom from my sophomore year to my senior year. And fun, there's a funny story about how this led to me moving to L.A., so when I was junior, senior high school, my best friend and I were into tuner cars. Our whole group was into tuner cars. And on this night, I don't even know if I should be talking about this, but it's fine. On this night, uh, we were driving and he had like a, a souped up MX-6, had a KLZE motor swap and all this stuff. And then I had an MX-3, nothing fancy. But we were driving side by side on the main road and we were like talking because at this age, I was like really hyper. I was like, hey, what's up, man? We were just talking. And a cop pulled us over. Uh, and we got tickets for street racing. So my license got suspended. So I couldn't drive. I forget what the length was. I don't know if it was six months or a year. I just, I don't remember. But we couldn't drive. And upset because that's your freedom, right? Being able to drive is your freedom as a teenager. Uh, my mom. So all of this is, is really thanks to my mom because she heard on the radio that there was this acting school coming and the school's name is John Roberts Powers at the time. I don't know what they're doing now, but at the time, that's what it was called. And they were at the radio and there was this big convention center and everyone brought their kids and it was just packed. It was packed. I didn't want to go. I was like, I'm not going to this stupid acting thing because it's not anything, it wasn't with me as a kid. I never thought to myself, oh, I want to be an actor. I want to be a director. I didn't care, right? I was playing basketball. Um, but she forced me to go. So we sat down. And I don't know if it was the, the director or the rep or whoever it was at this event. But he asked, hey, who can do this commercial for me right now? And for some reason, I just raised my hand because I thought it was dumb. I was like, yeah, I can do it. It's not a problem. 
So he said, okay, I want you to pretend it's a baby diaper commercial and you're putting the diaper on the baby or whatever it was. I'm surprised I remember that. Um, and I did it. No hesitation. I just did it. I was like, oh, you know. And, and I guess he was so impressed that I was able to do it that he invited me to their Atlanta location. Um, and he paid for everything. So he paid for the teachers. He paid and my mom would drive me in the mornings really early, like 5 or 6 a.m., wait all for the eight, four to eight hours that we were there and then drive back, right? So she would wait and we did that for a year. And after that year, there was a, Ve uh, a Las Vegas event called IPOP at the time. And I, uh, they paid for me to go to Vegas, to go to the event and everything. So then I got an agent out there at the time. Obviously, you're uh, naive at the time. I don't know anything. I don't, I didn't, I'm like, oh, I got an agent, right? From, from Georgia at the time. It's not like now where all the productions are moving to Atlanta. But you just don't know. You think, I have an agent. I'm going to be something. So at this crux in my life, not having any family members that graduated from college, not having anyone that's successful financially. So there, at that point, there's no one to look to. I will, uh, my, it was like, this is my golden ticket. This is how I'm going to build a life, right? Um, so once I got the agent and I graduated high school, I sold my radio. I had like this nice boombox stereo. I sold it for a couple hundred bucks and then I flew to, to California. And that is how I ended up in California. Where did you end up? Uh, at the time, it was, I believe it's Hollywood Boulevard. Hollywood Boulevard. And then I moved to Granada Hills. And then Granada Hills, I just kind of went south the whole time. Like every, because I got fired. Uh, I was a waiter at Olive Garden and I got fired because I saw a pretty girl. There was a guy at the table with her and another girl. And I'm, I'm assuming the guy liked the girl. And I, I asked for her number while I was waiting their table. <laughs> and uh, he complained. And then I got fired. So when I got fired, everything kind of crumbled because that was the way of how I made money. And he said something? Sorry. He said, yeah, he oh. said something. And being 18 with no skill set, right? It's like, how else do you get a job? Because you have to balance between making it to auditions and working. So at that point, it was like place to place, renting rooms, couch surfing, living in the car, going here, going here, just kind of doing that whole thing for a long time. Sorry, did they, did you need to bring him extra breadsticks? I mean, to make him have, just to, just to appease him? Yeah, you know what, I, I didn't know. Oh, okay, so yeah. I, there was no flirting up. between them. There was yeah. nothing. I just, and being young. Sure, you're 18. I, I was 18. And I, and I just saw a pretty girl and I was just like, hey, what's up, you're cute, what's your name? Sure. Yeah. Um, Whereas in hindsight, it was well worth it, right? Because I met my wife and had our son, and that's how life turned out. So it was well worth it. But in that moment, it led to a lot of struggling, which I can't really blame it on that because I have to take responsibility. I'm the one that shouldn't have asked for a phone number while working. So it all comes back to being my fault. But that, that, that's the crux of how I ended up in Los Angeles. So do you mind if I ask, how long were you living in the car, couch surfing? So that, those, that was probably like a good year. That was probably like a good year because what happens is, and along the way, I had a lot of people help me out, right? You don't make it 
living on uh, couch surfing, living in your car and stuff. You don't make it on your own. And uh, there's people that tip their head in here and there, whether it was, you know, someone giving you 10, 20 bucks, whether someone letting you stay on the couch for a night. I used to park my car into the neighborhoods to go to sleep. So, and there was a, there was a couple girls at the time that, uh, <laughs> that let me stay at their place and shower because, you know, I didn't have money for a gym membership to go shower at the gym. So, you know, every couple weeks or so often they would let me kind of stay for a night and then that was it. And you kind of just navigate and find your way and the way it kind of worked. I never had credit. I didn't have anyone that had good credit. I didn't have anyone that had money. So I couldn't say, hey, let's get this apartment or this house. Um, but what I did have was charm and just perseverance. So anytime I would get that big commercial check, right? Or, and this was the time, I don't know what it's like now because I haven't been in any commercials recently. But like at the time when I did like a McDonald's commercial or anything like that, you know, I got like 20, 30,000 for one day of work. That would last me six, seven, eight months of rent and gas and insurance to kind of make it to the next gig, right? Whereas now in hindsight, I'm like, man, if I got a $40,000 check like that, I would just put it down on a down payment on a house, rent out all the rooms, and then they have them pay for my mortgage. And then that way you can focus on something else because your roof is taken care of. So, no. Sure, but it took, it took a while for you to get that kind of financial literacy. Yes, and, yes. And, and a lot of hard, hard breaks. Oh, no, I was going to say, yeah, that all, that all came because of my wife. So my wife is much better with finances and she's more successful than I am. And when I met my wife, first day I met her, I told her, hey, we're getting married and I'm giving you a boy. We got married and I gave her a boy. Oh, wow. And what she told me, there there's a few things she told me. She said, you're gonna get life insurance, right? So I got life insurance and you're gonna go back to school. So I went back to school for IT. And now my day job, I'm, I'm in IT, I'm a, a network engineer. And that's how I made money. So the by her forcing me to go back to school, I took a loan on half and she paid for the other half. So really she invested in me as her life partner. By doing that and getting that stability, I was very lucky because I had somebody, again, help me along the way to become the man that I am today. It didn't just happen by myself. Like, yeah, I put in the effort, you know, studying and making sure I show up and get things done. But it was because my wife said, I know you're capable of more, so you're gonna do more. She was the wind to my sail, right? As cheesy as that sounds. So by me going back to school, getting that stability, now having a skill set, I'm able to create and do so much more and, and help inspire other people because I'm not worrying about where food's coming from. I'm not worried about the roof over my head. I'm not worried about, you know, life. Not, not to say that there isn't things to worry about, but I'm just not worried about life because I know whether I'm working for somebody, whether I'm working for myself, whether I get fired tomorrow, I have a skill set. And with that skill set, you'll always be able to make money to support your family. So with that stability as a filmmaker, an actor, a director, producer, writer, you're able to create like never before because you're not worried about the struggles of life. So 
back to the earlier question, when I was an actor, just a pure actor in, in, in Hollywood struggling, you couldn't really get as good as you want to be because so much of your focus is where am I sleeping tonight? How am I going to get food? Right? And these are my Ralph's chicken tenders with mac and cheese days. Or that, that was my meal, right? So once you're able to take care of the core of living as a human being, you're able to fully express yourself as a creator. That's excellent. And a good point too is when you have these quote unquote gypsy jobs here in LA, it's mm -hmm. someone else's term that I've, I've stolen. So gypsy jobs, which are, you know, hey, we need you to, to do this promotion or whatever for a week. That's great and they can pay well, but then you have to look for new work mm -hmm. and you're always, your time is spent looking for work mm -hmm. as well. So same with acting. Did you have a backup plan when you came to LA? No. And that, in hindsight, that's probably one of the things I would have done different. Um, obviously the life that we're on is the life that we're on and the things that happen you cannot change. But if I could still have the life that I have today but make some adjustments along the way so that journey was uh, not as turbulent, I would have had a plan B. And even now, being in the position that I'm in now, filmmaking is a hobby until it generates more than my career. And I tell anybody, it's like, hey, if you want this to be your number one, then it has to generate more than your current number one. Because as a human being, as a father, as a husband, uh, you have a responsibility to your family to provide. So because I have a family, I'm not 18 or 19, and if I were to give any advice to someone that's 18 or 19, I'd say, hey, have your plan B and have your plan A and do that in parallel. Because eventually they can do this. But if, you're, if what you want to do as A doesn't pan out, then at least your B is going to take care of you through life. Because whether you succeed or whether you don't succeed, time is going to go anyways. So you might as well pursue it, but pursue it the right way. I see a lot of times where younger people, and I was one of them, that say, I don't need a plan B. I'm going to make it on plan A. But what happens when you spend 10, 12, 15 years doing something and it doesn't happen, right? Time goes by fast. At one moment, you're 18. Then you're 25. Then you're 30. Then you're 35. And it's like, okay, well, what do I do? Well, if you rock your plan A, let's say this is Hollywood, right? Whether it's a writer, producer, any, anything creative. This is plan A. Plan B is uh, you're a dental assistant, you're a real estate agent, you're a mechanic, it doesn't matter. If you do this like this, eventually, if this pans out and you give enough water to this seed, hopefully you can do this, right? And this can now be the main thing that you're doing. But a lot of times where artists tend to go wrong is they don't see the show business of it. We all want to create and not talk numbers, but if something doesn't do well, then you can't sustain it. The business of Hollywood itself wouldn't sustain itself if it doesn't make money. So I say all that to say this. If you want to be a producer, a writer, a director, there's two things. Make sure you have food on your table. So if you're living with your parents, stay with them as long as you can. 
because life is just easier. And to just do it. Just do it. It doesn't matter if it's a small project, big project, big budget, no budget. Just do it because you're going to get better as time goes on. But if you don't do it and you expect somebody to just give you that handout, but you're on level zero, there's no way you can get to level 10 without going through one through nine. Why do you say that you weren't what you thought was quote unquote good enough to make it at that time? I don't think I was disciplined enough. There's something that comes with discipline. When you, when you have the struggle and then you have the lack of knowledge, you're winging it. And in life, you can't get anywhere with winging it. There's some things you can get into or get access to that you're not supposed to by winging it. But if you want to succeed, I say look at whoever it is and dissect backwards and create a plan. Because the more that you have a plan, the more likely you are to succeed. So if your plan is, hey, um, I want to be an Uber driver, then you know like, okay, I have to download this app. I have to send in this information. I have to get qualified. I have to go to their courses and then I have to go uh, and then I get qualified to be an Uber driver and then I pick up people and drop them off. Okay, so there was a plan there. So if you want to make it as an actor, what's the plan? Oh, I'm just going to show up. Well, for the, the lottery person, that may work. But for the majority of us, you have to ask yourself, okay, outside of everybody wanting to be Brad Pitt, right? Let's just take that off the table for a second. Okay, what kind of career do you want to have? Do you want to have a career as a commercial actor? Do you want to have a career as uh, a theatrical actor, a movie, TV? Okay, well, who's the casting director for the, your favorite shows? What are they looking for? Um, what's the look? What's the tone? Right. If you're looking to go into movies where and I say all that because as an actor, you're really taking anything that comes to you. Right. If you're in that circuit, any audition, commercial, TV, film, you're just you just you're so hungry and so desperate for a job that you'll take anything union, non-union. It doesn't matter. But if you're able to create a plan. The tunnel, the light becomes so much clearer. So, for example. And this, this isn't the greatest example, but I had an agent in LA, right? I mean, not LA, Atlanta. Right now I'm agentless, no agent, no manager, no anything. I kind of bypassed all of that. But I had an agent in Atlanta and I knew that I wasn't a good client to have because I turned down 95% of the auditions that came in. Because I had the stability of a career, I didn't need the jobs. When you don't need the jobs, you become picky. So now by having a plan and a goal, I knew the roles that I wanted to play. I knew the projects that I wanted to be a part of were projects that sounded interesting to what I like and just interesting in general. I no longer needed to just apply and be accepted to anything out there because I didn't need the money from the job, albeit whether it's a commercial or an acting job because I had a career over here. There's power and strength in that because now there is no desperation. There is no, um, hey, let's just send Jason out to audition for this gas station guy. Like, how does that benefit me in my career? Okay, I have one line. You can give that to anybody. 
You don't even have to audition for it. You can just give it to anybody. You give it to a PA on set. Hey, can you say this line? Yeah, absolutely. Right? So when you have a plan and you're able to just kind of go from step one to two to three to four, the likelihood of you getting there sooner is a lot greater. How many times do you think you heard the word no while you were in Los Angeles? Every time. <laughs> I would say my, my booking rate was probably, I would, if I'm going to be fair, I would say probably about 3 to 5%. So out of every 100, I booked maybe 3 to 5. Um, which in hindsight isn't bad. And I would say about 85% of it, 85% of the time I would get callbacks. And those are the most crushing. Because I'd rather just get a no than to get your hope up that you could get it. They called you back. Like Power Rangers, I went to like five auditions and you, you could possibly get it. And then they're like, nah, no. I, you know, I'd prefer to just, you know, cut me off at the door. But yeah, I would say no is probably the greatest thing to make you as a human being stronger. Because when you realize that every no is just closer yes, they're just little things that come and come go out the way to get to that yes. You welcome the no's. I welcome no's. It's okay because I'm gonna talk to the next guy. I'm gonna talk to the next guy. I'm gonna talk to the next guy until I get the yes. That's what's changed with being a filmmaker compared to wanting to be an actor. If you're someone out there that's a creative, you spend so much time wanting to get on set, whether it's background work, because that's how I started. I started going background work, um, a one-liner, maybe a day player. If you look back on it and you spend all those years just to get on set, what happens if you would have created a plan to create your own set? How would that have turned out? And create the project and the role that you want to be a part of, that you want to see. And then be in a position to give other people opportunities. In all of my films, majority of the actors are first-time, second-time actors with not a lot of credits. And I make sure that if I say, hey, do you want to be a part of this project? And they say yes. And let's say in the script I only have one line for them. I'll make sure to go back and write two, three, four, five lines, so they really feel like they were a part of the project and not just there to kind of make a cameo, right? So I just think that as a creative, it's important to create the films that you want to see and you want to be a part of compared to wearing so much about trying to get on set. I think it can change the, the dynamic for a lot of people. Because if you think about it, social media has changed everything. For people our age that were born in the 70s, 80s, like, yeah, we grew up with the Hollywood star. For us, it's the stars, right? For the newer generation, it's the social media influencers. They're the stars. So. You can create your star at home in Kentucky. It doesn't matter where you are. You can become a star. You push record and you do something every day. 
and just be consistent with it. And I would challenge anybody. I'm not good at this. I don't do it. But I would challenge anybody. If you put on your calendar right now, say, I want to be an influencer, right? And for 365 days without missing a day, you post something about something. I can guarantee you that account that's at zero in a year, if you did it every day without missing a day, that you will be way further than you are today. Now, the issue with that is, comes back to responsibility to the human self. How many people are going to stick to that every day and be disciplined because there's power in discipline to do that every single day, not make excuses and not miss it? Because I don't do it every day. I'm quite frankly, I, because I grew up in that era, which I think is the best era for films, 80s, 90s, like hands down the best era for films and entertainment. Um, that's what I enjoy doing. So that's what I spend my time doing. I'm not into social media as much as I should be because that's where everything is now. Um, yeah, I would say if you want to make it, you want to do it, start with your phone, start at home, create it because then you get enough of a following, they're going to come to you anyways. In hindsight, do you wish you had left Los Angeles earlier? <sighs> yes and no. Uh, I want to say no because that led me to meeting my wife, which uh, then we had our son. But yes, because it's not even leaving LA sooner, it's creating sooner. I, I don't want to say wish because wish makes it seem like you're looking at some third entity to do something for you. It would have been nice to create sooner create the roles that i wanted to see that i wanted to be a part of sooner that would have been nice and i think that would have changed a lot because for anybody out there once you do your first film whatever you thought was hard whatever you thought was difficult whatever you thought was impossible is gone because when you can complete it once you can complete it twice then each time you do it, it becomes easier and easier. So when I did the first film, by no means is it an Oscar film, is it, is it well written, because I'm not the best writer. I don't put commas and periods where they should be. I kind of just write and this is the story and this is what we're going to do. I don't do 10 drafts. I do maybe two just to kind of check it. Once you get that first film out, you learn where you make mistakes. You learn the focal length that you'd like to shoot at and that you don't like to shoot at. You kind of learn your style, right? So getting that first film out is more important for you as a human being and as a creator to let yourself know, like, I can do this and I can do it and get better every single day and I can keep creating than it is for you to create a masterpiece of a film. Because I'd rather have... 10 average five-star films than to have one masterpiece. And the reason for that is because if you think of the economy of actors, writers, producers, grips, PAs, the whole economy of making one film, if I'm able to do 10 that are average films, I gave them a lifeline of 10. I gave actors and actresses the opportunity to be a part of 10 films compared to one. And you live and you grow 
and you and, and, and as time goes on when you make films it's now an experience because you've made them compared to watching them when you watch a film or you watch a TV show there's this ah there's this magic to it that you're like oh wow that would be great then when you make it and you start making it and you start making film one film two TV series web series it's not that the magic leaves the magic of the lens changes where now you're not looking for someone to give you an opportunity you're able to give other people opportunities and I can tell you from my films how many actors have started creating their own projects and that in itself is so rewarding because by them looking at you and seeing you do it they look at themselves and say well if he can do it with that I can do it too and that is so rewarding and that I think is a game changer what's your advice for let's say an 18 year old mm -hmm. graduated high school comes to LA with really no no plan but also they're leaving a situation where they didn't have a choice mm -hmm. maybe mm -hmm. how do they keep themselves creative how do they keep themselves safe okay so that's that's a really good question I think that stay away from anything that looks easy uh, stay away from hey why don't you come live with me where is that coming from what's the ulterior uh, alternative motor uh, what is the ulterior motive there um, I would say go back to school even if it's worth even if you have to take that loan because you'll make that back and I don't say go back to school for film go back to school for something that you know makes money because having that those funds they're going to help you create they're going to help you be a better version of yourself so stay away from drugs stay away from parties stay away from situations where you are not your coherent self and write two goals write your goal on okay how do I get to where I want to be whether that's a writer on the Fox lot whether that's a producer or a director okay who can I shadow or who can I contact to mentor me because they'll give you insight and information that'll get you there a lot sooner than you trying to figure it out um, how can I stay grounded and true to myself you know a lot of times you hear people talk about oh this person you know sold their soul or anything like that right something crazy but I think what really happens is when you're young and you don't have a choice and you're just trying to survive I think you do things that as you get older and you grow as a person that you weren't proud of and I think that as you get older it sits on your conscience and it eats you and I think that's more of the soldier soul than anything else and I would say to stay strong to who you are at the core as a human being because when I was 18 and I was out here there were opportunities 
Whereas like, hey, yeah, come stay with me, right? And I never took up those opportunities. But it kept my conscience so clean and the objective of and the goal of what I was trying to do so strong that even though I quit acting after 15 years, or it was like 12, 12 to 15 years, I don't remember exactly. But even though I quit at that audition, I didn't, it didn't take away the fire of wanting to be a part of something great. And the magic of film is that you're able to inspire someone at home, whether they're in India or they're in uh, Georgia, you're able to spread that magic to someone else. You're able to live forever within that space of time. So when you create a film and you star in it, you co-star in it, and you're on that screen, it's almost like a legacy capture piece because your kids, your grandkids will always be able to look at you in that time and space and say, look at my dad or my granddad, that was him. And I think that alone is, is such a magical thing uh, about film. And I know I kind of went off from the advice I would give the 18 year old, but I, that goes back to me saying, stay true to yourself. Don't compromise who you are. That doesn't mean that you, you, you don't have to bend and you have to give because in any even marriage or relationship, and a career is kind of like a relationship. There's a give and a take, but you don't compromise in your core values as a human being in your pursuit of anything. Why have you been able to create the roles and the projects you want in Atlanta, but not so much in Hollywood? <sighs> Price? <laughs> um, I think that, so in Hollywood, and I noticed it even when I flew in. It's like there's, there's this go, go, go. There's this hustle, 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 struggle, 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 survive, survive, survive. You feel that energy here. And in Atlanta, it's a lot easier to get locations. It's a lot easier to get collaborative people because a lot of times it's just the effort, the aligned effort. I don't even call work work anymore. It's just aligned effort. Right. So when you have that aligned effort with multiple people, you're able to get something that's a lot more magical. A lot of times you hear from people that say, hey, if you're going to make an indie film, make it in one location. Right. And I'm completely against that. And the only reason why I'm against that is because you still have to make the film interesting to the viewer. And if you only have one location, there's only so much you can do. Not to say that there hasn't been successful films in one location. But when you're an indie filmmaker, you're trying to maximize production value. And how can you maximize production value on a stringed budget? In Georgia, you're able to get these locations that you would never, unless you knew the owner of this place or something, or he was an uncle, you would never be able to get. So that is probably why it's so much easier to create in Georgia.
And and it's cleaner there too, isn't it? Yes. Like it looks from from the stuff that I was seeing on your channel, like it just looks so clean and all the places look so nice. Yes. Like San Fernando Valley, for mm -hmm. anyone who hasn't come here, you really feel the struggle here. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's just, you know, minutes away from Hollywood. But there is, that's funny as an outsider for just a little bit, seeing mm -hmm. that perspective, because when you live in it day in and day out, you, you don't even realize it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the thing is, it's not to say that Atlanta, the city, doesn't have its struggle, because it does. But, you know, the, the state of Georgia is very family-oriented, small businesses, right? So if, you kinda, if you're into those two things, Georgia will be great. Now, you're going to have your little pockets. That's real country. But if you're not into those pockets and you're kind of like in the metro areas and stuff, you're, it's, it's a beautiful place to live. But there's still, it's a lot easier for you to get your project done in Georgia. And I would assume... For any filmmaker in Kansas, Idaho, Chicago, any place in Georgia outside of LA and New York, I would assume it's so much easier for you to use what you have, use the places that you visit frequently where people know your face. And if you're able to write your story around that kind of stuff, because if you're an indie filmmaker and your thought process, I know my thought process is, I'm not looking to sell this to somebody to hope that somebody else gives them a yes to then hope that somebody else gives them a yes to go make this project. I write within what I know that I can accomplish to go shoot. So I don't have a backlog of 10, 15, 20 scripts. I write, shoot, write, shoot, write, shoot. That if you're in another state and you're like, man, I need to get to Hollywood or I need to get to Atlanta, I wanna get into the industry, you can start the industry where you are. Because all it takes is one financial successful hit. And the reason why I say financial is because nobody cares how good your movie is if it's not financially successful because it's a business. So if you can create something that's financially successful and get a return where you are, then you can create your own solar system of Hollywood where you are. For my films, I use the same actors, the same people. They don't even audition anymore. For all of the roles, I'll call them up. Hey, do you wanna play this role? Yeah, okay, cool, we're gonna do it. And then that's, I really wanted the, the Adam Sandler thing. I really wanted to, to have this core group of actors that we become family and we work on all of the same projects together because one thing that I know about indie filmmaking, and this is really advice to any filmmaker, energy, cohesive energy amongst people is a lot more valuable and you'll get a better product than having somebody that's extremely talented, could be the best actor, best writer, best anything, best director, but if their energy is not cohesive with the rest of the crew and cast, then one drop of toxic and you know a gallon of water, it's still poisonous. So energy is important. Why did you schedule the production on Sundays? So I knew that I was free and I was able to focus on weekends to shoot. And I knew that majority of the time actors aren't doing anything on the weekends. So I thought to myself, hey, we can either make movies on weekends while we're watching Netflix from our couch, 
or we can do nothing and watch Netflix from our couch. So that's why, you know, weekends is the most beneficial because I work like everyone else. We work during the week. You know, we have rent to pay and bills to pay. But on the weekends, it's like, that's fun time. You can either relax or create. And I think a lot of actors can agree with this. You feel alive. Like, I know for me, I, I come alive when I'm filming, when I'm on set. Like, it, it's a feeling like no other. It's almost like a, I don't want to say high because I don't do drugs and I, I never have, but it's almost like a high, I would say, for the lack of better words. I come alive when I perform. And I know other actors feel this way because you can see the sparkle turn on. When it's like action, you see the sparkle. When they see themselves on the screen, you see the sparkle. You're able to take the audience to another world, right? And it's so important because majority of the actors on my films, first time actors, maybe they've done like a student film or a short film, but they're not, they don't have these heavy credits. You have like one or two that have a lot of credits, but for a lot of them, it's their first time. So by being able to give them that experience to let them know like, hey, you already did one movie, you can audition and you can do other movies and you can make it happen because you've already did it. You you're boosting other people as well. You're giving other people opportunities to showcase what they really want to do. And you're letting them know like, hey, this is a safe space. You have the creative freedom to talk. You have the creative freedom to say whatever you want. You have the creative freedom to like a line or not like a line and, and change it and play it how you want to play it. You have that freedom. You don't have to feel nervous. Um, and if you look on the films, a lot of times, you're, you're not really able to tell that it's a first-time actor or a second-time actor because that comfortability, right? Acting is about being comfortable. Just when there's action, you're comfortable. And you're going to get two different responses from actors. One that's not comfortable, they're going to rush through their lines. Oh, my God. What, what is that? Huh? What? Comfortable actor. Oh, my God. What is that? Okay, that's great. I like that take, right? Because that's what we were trying to convey. If you can allow someone to be comfortable, you're able to get a better performance. And I think that by a shooting on the weekends, you're already relaxed. And then by shooting with the same people, same actors, same crew, you're, there's familiarity. There's no pressure. By you having the freedom as a creator or a creative to do whatever you want, now you know like, hey, it doesn't matter if you mess up lines. I will sometimes purposely mess up lines to let everyone know like, it's okay. We're just going to push record again and we're going to go. And I think that by shooting on weekends, you're able to get a lot more collaborative people on board with your projects because they're not doing anything on those weekends anyways, for the most part. Plus too, it's in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And I, I know there's a lot of productions, but not as much as LA. So do you think people feel too this, an excitement that they're part of a film production? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, how do you climb the stairs without taking steps, right? You have to take steps and once you're able to get your feet wet, you're able to swim in the pool. And it's important to join your theater group, you do student films, short films, commercials, 
because you're getting experience points. Like a lot of times, I think people see people on TV and they say, oh, I can do that. It's no problem. That's easy. For some people, it is easy for some people, but for most people, you know how much work it takes just to be comfortable in front of the camera and have a hundred people looking at you? Sometimes it's not about you being able to do it. Sometimes it's about you trusting in yourself enough and being comfortable enough to do it. And sometimes that's the barrier. So I used to be really bad at auditions. Even though I would get a lot of callbacks and stuff, I used to just not perform as good as I could. But anytime I booked a film or a commercial or anything, I did fantastic when it was go time. And I don't know what that circuitry was. If I could, if I could take that go time and put it in auditions, I probably would book a lot more. But for some reason, I didn't view the audition as the job. And I think if you view the audition as the job, you'll win more and you'll do more as a creative. How did you start over in Atlanta? So I was working an IT job as a network engineer. And I was sitting there, and this was right before COVID. So this was like 2019 uh, that this happened. And I was looking at the landscape. Mind you, I, at this point, I, I, I kind of quit Hollywood for a while. I wasn't auditioning, wasn't doing anything. And I was looking at the landscape and I still did not see what I wanted to see, what my goal was when I went out there. I didn't see it. And just for some insight, what the goal was, um, if I break it down further than like the Asian Will Smith, it was really seeing a leading Asian guy in a non-Asian role. So what that means is, if you see someone like myself, but it, there is no Kung Fu. There is no, okay, this is about an Asian family in Malaysia. There's nothing. It's just like, hey, that guy uh, just so happens to be Asian. There is no Asian story. We don't own a liquor store. There's no laundromat. There's no Kung Fu. There's no sidekick. It's just, oh, he's the love interest and he just so happens to be Asian. When you create stories like that, it becomes powerful because now it's, it's just normal. It's just normal, right? You're not, you're not highlighting the fact that this person's Asian. They're just a human being playing a role. So because I didn't witness that in, enough, right? And you have your hits, right? You have your Shang-Chi Marvel film, fantastic. But the title is Shang-Chi. It's a martial arts film that takes place where there's a lot of Asians. Then you have something else like um, Crazy Rich Asians. The title is Asians, dealing with an Asian family. So of course you're going to cast Asians. Now mind you, these films are fantastic films, but in order to separate that gap, really for all ethnicities, you have to play regular roles, right? And you can't force Right. And a lot of times today we see forced. You can't force something that's already established. And what I mean by that is if this franchise has a history and this character and a fan base along with that history and this character, like let's say Iron Man, right? Robert Downey Jr., that's everyone's Iron Man. Iron Man has looked like Iron Man since the beginning, right? If you now put uh, another race as Iron Man, 
it's not going to work because of the history associated with that character. You have to create new characters. You have to create new stories as whatever that race is or whatever you want to be. That's a lot easier to digest from a fan base because it's new than it is to swap somebody out because it's trending today. Because now you're alienating the 50, 60 years of fans that have purchased those comic books, that have read those stories, that have fallen in love with these characters. For instance, I'm a big anime guy. I love Dragon Ball Z. If I ever get the opportunity to direct or be a part of any Dragon Ball Z live action film, I swear I would do it justice. But we all know as anime fans what these characters look like, right? And here is where it's, it's that fine line. So because we all know, we've been with these characters for people that are my age, we've been with these characters for 25 years. This is what we, we like love and we are into. If you change that or, or you gender swap it or anything, for us fans who are diehard, who will go watch anything related to that, you've now alienated us for, for whatever reason. Now, if you want to race swap it, gender swap it, or anything like that, create a new story, create a new comic, create new characters, create new storylines, create a new world, right? That's the beauty of film. You can create anything and put anybody in any role. So with my films, when I write, they're just new storylines. And a lot of times I put myself in the leading role because my goal is to break that barrier. And the way I do that is they have, like if, if you think of something like, a, like Four Amigos or like my uh, a film we just wrapped it, where it's in post now, it's called Pizza Boy Rick. It has nothing to do with race. I just so happen to be an Asian guy in the film. But because it has nothing to do with race, you don't see that. It's just like, oh, he's just playing this character. That's how you break the wall down. Not by forcing it like, oh, okay, hey guys, today we're gonna put an Asian guy in this role. Like if you put me as Black Panther, that's not gonna work. No, no one's gonna look at that and say, okay, yes, yes, we want, no, nobody wants that. I don't even want that. That, that doesn't work. So I think that's where creating your own story and originality is extremely powerful. And if you want to see change in the dynamics of Hollywood in American cinema, then you as the writer, as the filmmaker, you have to be that change. You have to create that change. If you're Indian, Asian, black, white, it doesn't matter. You have to write the story from your perspective because you can't expect somebody that's not your race to write you as that leading guy because they don't know your perspective. They know their perspective. So if you want to create change and you want to be a part of change and you're sitting there and you're like, oh, why haven't they done that? Don't make excuses. Go create the change. Because even if I break one layer in my career, the next person will come and break two layers. And then before you know it, there's a trail. What about everything, everywhere, all at once? How is that for a beautiful film, beautiful storyline, in terms of the stereotypes? There's, so with something like that, there is the exception, right? People are going to create what they know. 
and what they love, right? So the creators of that, they made the Lil John video. I forget what the music video was, but it had like an Asian dude that was dancing crazy and it was breaking through the floors and the wall and like their style is very, very creative. That's fine. It's, a, it's fine to make time skipping, martial arts, action. That's fine because that's what we've seen as far as what we're used to from, let's say, someone that's Asian. But if you want to continue to keep pushing that boundary, then we have to be the love interest. We have to be uh, the guy that saves the day, right? We have to do these things and not have it tied to our lineage. So if you think of something like, let's say, um, it wouldn't work, but like, let's say House of Dragons, right? If the king was an Asian guy, but it had nothing to do with him protecting an Asian state or, or property or you know land, and the way he got that power was he killed the king. That's powerful. Because it has nothing to do with him being Asian. He just so happens to be the guy that killed the king and now he's the king and everyone fears him so they're not gonna approach him, right? That's where the little minute changes happen. And, and, and to your point, it really takes creators of different ethnic groups to create because only you can create from your voice, your experience and your perspective. No one else can do that for you. How do you think it is for people to say, well, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of, you know, whatever there's, there's RRR, there's, um, you know, the Shaws of Sunset, there's, there's crazy rich Asians. There's all these, these shows out there. But it, it's, it's only like within one world. Yes. So it, it kind of just like exists, but, but it's not, there's no diversity. It's just all one of each kind. And, and, and here's the thing. America is like the melting pot of the world, right? Seeing every race is normal. Whether you're uh, at the grocery store, grabbing a bite to eat, we all blend. We're all a bunch of everything, right? So... In order for anyone to see anything that represents them on screen, they have to create it. You can't expect someone else to create your story, your pain, if they're not like you. It's just, it, it, they can't because their lens is different, right? So when you mention Triple R, fantastic film, by the way. I loved it. Yeah. Um, but that's an all-encompassing film with its own ethnicity associated to that film. And that's fine because you're going to always have those. But that's not an American film. When you're talking about American cinema and you hear in the news... You hear from all these creatives like, oh, this person, you know, doesn't like this or this person hates this or why can't this person be this? How about all the noise stop? And how about action take over? 
And how about people start writing, start creating, start filming, start casting, start producing, instead of talking, talking, talking for someone else to go do that. If you're constantly talking for someone else to do it, then it's going to take a lot longer for it to ever get done if it ever gets done. So we've seen strides, I would say nowadays, it's kind of like a lot of times it's forced. That's why it doesn't work because it's forced. Nothing forced works. Even when your parents say, hey, go do the dishes right now. Like you reluctantly go to do them dishes compared to, you know, hey, get these dishes done. I'm going to make sure that, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish, the iPod or iPad or whatever that you wanted, you do these dishes enough time without me having to tell you, I'm going to make sure I get that for you. Okay, cool. Not, not that you have to come to some kind of agreement with your kid, but it's a lot easier than having to force them to go do something because now they don't want to do it. So it sounds like if something is too much within its stereotype, then it's, it feels like it's too patronizing maybe? Yes, because okay. now you're only seeing blue when in, in fact we live in, in a rainbow, right? When you see too much of one color, that's, that's what it is, right? It's, yeah. it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. That's that kind of film. But if you're trying to blend everything, then it's important for those new stories to flourish, those new filmmakers to direct and create and to cast, you know, for those roles. Because if not, then why would it change? If the business has been successful for a hundred years and it's been financially um, uh, in the positive, then why would they change that? Why would they go and take a risk? If you think about it, right? Even big actors that are established, they have to go screen test. Sometimes they have to audition, right? If they have to do that and they are proven, what makes you think that they're going to go with an unknown different ethnic group for this role and take a risk on you and invest 50 to 100 million dollars for you to go and hopefully bring a return that's not going to happen or if it is it's super rare but if you go create your own story and you go and make that film and it becomes successful now there's a track record for you to level up and have the opportunity to expand that vision and that voice. You know how there's the Bechtel test, the test, certain things about how women are portrayed or, or how they're seen through the lens. Do you do that with your films where it's like, okay, I don't know if I want to do an ethnic stereotype. I know this person checks this box, but I don't want them to fit that role. So I don't check any boxes. Um, my films are super diverse, but it's not on purpose. Um, I get the best people really energy wise and I, they all are very talented, but I get people that I like. And when we collaborate on a project, there is no, okay, I'm putting this person in this role because they're this, that doesn't exist on any of my projects. And when we film, I give everyone the creative freedom to do whatever they want. I don't care what they say. I don't care how they say it. I don't care how they play it. Just know that if in this scene it's important to mention a glass of water, right? Because somewhere else later in the film, 
a glass of water, something happens with that glass of water, then okay, hey, I don't, I don't care how you get here, just say something about the glass of water. Everyone has the freedom to play it however they want. So there is no stereotype because you're playing it however you see it. Um, and I think that's important. So when I cast outside of great energy, um, I personally just don't see really anything outside of that's another human being. So any role in any film, movie it, it, that I make, anybody can play it. Anybody can play any role. And it's fine. And sometimes on any films, you'll shuffle. Like, hey, you know what, last minute, like, okay, look, look, you go here, you go, okay, cool, okay, great. And that's kind of what's worked for me. Do you think you would be as effective in Atlanta now had you not spent those 15 years in Los Angeles? Uh, no. I think that pain, which is just your memories and feelings that you attach to those memories, if you're able to conquer that and let that go, you're able to, to grow into a better version of yourself. So those struggles of being in LA, those wins of being in LA, uh, getting into those casting rooms, seeing the casting directors, booking jobs, missing out on jobs. In hindsight, it was such a, a, a life lesson in school of, hey, you wanna make it in this industry? That's what you're gonna go through. You're gonna go through 10 no's to get that yes. You're gonna go through 50 no's to get that yes, yes, yes. And then you're gonna go through another 60 no's to get a yes. It's so important because you're able to adjust and calibrate your mental. And your mental is so important because if you can be grateful for getting the opportunity to say some words to somebody that can say yes or no to you, and you change that perspective. So the perspective I used to have was, I already did commercials, I already did movies, uh, here's my pictures, they know what I sound like and look like, they should just hire me, right? That was my perspective at the time, and I felt like I was too good. Like, yeah, they should hire me, like, you, you know I can do this. But there's a thousand other people that have done work, more work than you, look just as attractive or whatever they're looking for as you. That's why they're having you come in to read. So. When you change that perspective from a, I'm too good or maybe a negative, like, oh, I didn't book that, but why her, not me? You know, and I used to feel that a lot, like, why them, not me? And you change that to, man, I'm just so grateful. I am so thankful to just be here. I'm so thankful that you're giving me your time to let me read for you, or you're giving me your time to see me. I'm so thankful that that person got it because they were the best person for that role at that time. I'm so thankful. And then you change everything to being thankful. The process is so much easier. Like now, I don't worry if someone says yes or no. I'm just thankful for the opportunity. I don't, I'm not concerned with if I read for 100 casting directors or I read for one. I don't worry if someone likes my films or they hate my film because I only can control what I can control. So when I make something and I put it out into the world, that's for the world to judge. And whether you like it or hate it, it doesn't bother me. If you like it, I'm, I'm so glad because then I made the film for you. If you don't like it, it doesn't bother me. You still watched it to come out with the conclusion that you, that you don't like it, but that negative opinion on it doesn't affect me at all in the least bit. So when you think about, is it easier now in Atlanta or California, it's like, California needed to happen 
because it taught me what I had to do in Atlanta if I wanted to make it in this industry. You talked about earlier flying into LA. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was Burbank or LAX. LAX. Okay, LAX. So you said you, you kind of saw like the hustle and bustle and how everybody's rushing, rushing around. And I think that the attitude that you talked about, not to beat yourself up, but of how come them and not me, I think that permeates. That's just part of what happens here, yeah. unfortunately. That's the dark side of human nature. We all have it in us. Yeah. And so I, I think it just, you know, energy is infectious. We, we feel it. And yeah. this is what happens here. Yeah. And, I, you know, so the funny thing is when I came to LA at 18 and I flew into LAX, when I took that first breath, and step out of the airport. I was like, I am home. This is it. I loved it. I was like, yes. Like, I, like you, you could feel the energy differently. Now, as a, as a veteran coming back, it's like, oh man, I, I, I love it, but I can't wait to go home at the same time. Um, that thought of why them and not me is very dangerous. And the reason why it's so dangerous is because we as creators, as human beings, as friends, we have to take responsibility for where we are in life at any given moment. It's no one's fault. It's not your mom's fault. It's not your, pa your, your, your past, right? Your past and all those pains are literally just memories and feelings that you associate to those memories. That is it. The past is done. So that means every day you wake up, you have the opportunity to create a new version, a better version of yourself. You also have that same opportunity to create a worse version of yourself. So that thought, the reason why it's so dangerous of why them and not me is because if you took the responsibility to say, let me get better. Let me just get better. Let me just read more. Let me just go over scripts more. Let me just kind of see what the landscape is. Let me write more. Let me, let me get a camera and just kind of practice auditioning. Let me set up this lighting. Let me give this line. You're already moving those muscles to become better where be happy that they got it because they were in the same room as you. So that means that it's possible for you to get it. And when you just start doing these little minute changes and you put in the effort and you take responsibility for your life, for your career, for who you are as a person, you can blossom into whatever flower you want to be. Was there a book that you read or some conversation with someone that helped you kind of look at taking responsibility for where you're at? <sighs> NLP? Training. Yeah, no, no, yeah, I got you. Uh, <laughs> Tony Robbins? As far as taking responsibility, that would come from my wife. My wife has given me so many lessons and I'm so thankful for it. Um, so my wife is 10 years older than I am. And it's a fantastic dynamic because I'm the creative and she's the one that dots the I's and T's, right? I couldn't have done any of this without my wife. But she's the one that holds me to realism, right? If I complain, you know, oh, why isn't this film doing this good? Or why is this person, you know? She's like, well, get better. Do better, right? Write better. Do more. What are you complaining about? Complaining doesn't do anything. And then my rebuttal is, I'm just letting off steam, right? I'm just letting off steam. But there's been no book that's, that I can say has changed my life. There, I'm not a heavy reader. Um, I watch channels like this while I'm making films. 
right? There's so much information for filmmakers that if you come across this video, go to the library of Film Courage and, and you will find whatever it is that you're looking for that can help change your life. This field that we're in, if you can find someone to hold you accountable and to throw those excuses right in your face and tell you that you're making excuses like the way my wife does to me, you'll leapfrog who you were. And I know your wife, she's kind of self-made as well. Yeah, so my wife is from Puerto Rico um, and uh, she was in the IT field for like 20 years and that's why she knew to have me go into IT. Uh, and then she started, uh, I'm gonna say she, even though it's, it's a unity, but in reality it's really, she runs it. Uh, a med spa in Georgia, and then we created a reality show uh, for the med spa. So, yeah. Very cool. Yeah, and you can see that. Um... So yeah, so that we actually did independent distribution through Film Hub. Oh, nice. We created uh, three episodes, so three twenty-minute episodes uh, for the spa, and uh, it's in Roswell. It's called Park Ave Cosmetic Center, um, and we went through Film Hub. And the reason why we went through Film Hub is because this is a local show right, a local space, we're able to do all of the advertisements for it locally. So it's not an international thing where it's like, hey, let's try and procure a distributor, even though there's a bunch of horror stories with distribu distribution, but the truth is, is they have certain channels that you as a filmmaker just don't have access to. So I said, hey, you know, let's go through Film Hub because we'll have control over it 100%, and then we can do all of the marketing locally ourselves. So it's past quality control, um, and then now it'll probably be up on Amazon Prime and like to be here soon. Oh, great. So we're just waiting on that, yep. Your message to artists, don't quit your day job. Yes. So it's so important because it goes back to what we were saying about having your, your A goal and your B goal. And by you having a day job, for me anyways, it gave me the stability to create my own films, right? I was able to procure locations, feed casts, take care of them, do films, do projects because I had a day job. If I only worried about booking jobs to live, I would be struggling because I haven't booked a job in this field in like five, six years. So then that means I would go five or six years without any income looking to work as a PA on set or you know, having to do background work or having to do oddball jobs. Whereas when you, when you get that skill, you're able to just build the foundation and without the foundation, you can't do anything. But with the foundation of uh, financial security, and it doesn't matter how much you make, 30,000, 50,000, 80,000, you know how much you're bringing in so you can kind of mold your life around it, then you're able to create. You're able to know, okay, I'm off Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I'm gonna film Fridays and Saturday nights or Saturdays and Sunday, however you're gonna do it. And I'm just gonna do that slowly. Consistency for a creator is more important than anything. So if you're a writer, I have a goal that I live by. If I'm planning on writing a script because I like a story, I do a minimum of three pages a day. And that minimum means if I can get three pages a day, then in a month I have a script. If you do one page a day and you hold yourself to that one page, in three months you'll have a script. 
But if you're not disciplined enough to hold yourself to that one page or three pages, then you'll never have anything and that story will stay stuck in your head. So when you have discipline, you have your, your goal A, goal B, it becomes so important because you're able to get a lot further. Think about it. If you go to the gym and you're disciplined to work out every day, you're going to get stronger. So if you're a filmmaker and you're disciplined to shoot every weekend, discipline, discipline. Okay, maybe it took you six months, but now in six months, compared to you thinking about doing something, it's done. That turtle versus the race, uh, that turtle versus the rabbit that we all used to listen to and how the turtle used to win, you don't understand it as a kid or when you're younger because you're like, the rabbit is way faster. But consistency can move mountains. So be consistent. Okay. Let me just play the opposite approach for a minute, though. Let's suppose you get this great job, IT, it's very in demand, mm -hmm. especially now, post-pandemic. What if you get into a lifestyle? Now you have a nice car. Now you have a nice place. Now you have friends coming over for dinner, and mm -hmm. they're in the same profession or, or similar. And, and then there's this little gnawing at you, and you're like, you know what? I don't want to be at this keyboard right now. I want to be creating something. I had that. And that's what led me to making films. Once you get that creative bug, it kind of never leaves you. Because even though I kind of quit Hollywood, I didn't stop. That feeling never left me of wanting to create and wanting to see something. So lifestyle, working in a job, you can't make the excuses. If you want to do it, you have to find time, right? And I say that because I'm married. I still have time for my wife. I'm a father. I still have time for my son. We do his kumon and his schoolwork, and I pick him up from the bus stop. I still work 40 hours a week at my job. When I get off at 5, I can either write a script from 5 to 6. I can edit a film from 5 to 6. That consistency as a turtle every day of one hour, two hours of creative output leads to a mountain of work. In three years, from an independent standpoint, you have three films, you have a web series with 12 to 13 episodes, you have a reality show about a med spa, and then you have a reality pilot episode in three years. And you're only able to do that if you're consistently pounding at it. So even if you're in a career, instead of mindlessly searching through social media and letting an hour pass by, you can go and align that effort towards what it is that you're trying to accomplish. So again, if you're trying to write a script or you're trying to write a book, do a page a day because in three months, your script is done. If you're uh, shooting a film, shoot one day a week. And then before you know it, if it's 16 days, okay, in four months, you're done shooting and now you're in post and then you apply that same tactic. Go edit for an hour. Go edit on the weekend. It's all about balance and consistency because you still need time for your friends. You still need time for your spouse or significant other. You still need time for your kids. You need time for yourself. I do all that while I still play video games, right? 
it's important to have that balance, but if you are a creative, and I think someone gave me this statistic, I think like 12% of the world are creatives. And then 98% of filmmakers never make a second film, right? Those two kind of statistics I think are accurate, but I could be wrong. If 12% of the world are creatives, then that, and the whole world consumes art, right? Every film is art, every commercial, every story is art then that means if you're one of those creatives and that kind of sticks with you and that's like the invisible wings on your back that, that you just have to fly, then you owe it to yourself and you owe it to, your, to, to the world to let that art out. Because if you die one day with that art inside of you and you're old and you're only stuck with your thoughts, you don't wanna live a life or leave a life with regrets. You want to leave a life, regardless of the success attached to it, with I did it, I tried my best, and I gave my best effort. The results are out of your hands. Because even films with hundreds of millions of dollars in budget flop. The success is out of your hands. The creation and giving it its best effort is within your capabilities. So before you leave this earth, do everything that you can to get that feeling, that, that conscious art out of you. Because if you don't do it, in that web of consciousness, somebody else is going to pull it. So, for example, I wasn't planning on making Pizza Boy Rick, which is my latest film that's in post. I wasn't planning on making it at all. I was at a Cisco event as an engineer for three days in Vegas. And I was laying in bed by myself, just randomly watching TV. The thought came to me instantly. The whole story, I could see play in my head. I went into my phone and my notes, and I just wrote points. Uh, Rick goes here, okay, this is what, this is what happens. This is what, and then I came back, wrote the script in about a week. If I didn't pull that from the artistic consciousness that all creators, I think, pull ideas from, somebody else would have. So I think it's important to give it your best effort for yourself as a human being and for your soul because we all die. And you don't want to be on your deathbed saying, man, I wish I would have done things differently. Do you think that nine to five gives you structure where you know you have this hour before you have to, I don't know, pick up your son or take him to Kumon or whatever, and, and you're like, I have to do this now or it's not going to happen? It gives me stability because we would all love to just make films full time and be like Spielberg or Christopher Nolan or Quentin Tarantino. We would all love that. We would all want to be in that position. But until you're in that position, then you have to do what works. And what I've realized growing up and going through life is that life does not have to be a struggle. When you grow up poor, like I did and many other people in the world, you think that struggle is normal, that you have to struggle. But when you realize that, hey, if I just take these steps in life differently, maybe I don't have to struggle. Well, guess what? If you're back to being that 18-year-old kid that wants to fly out because you don't have a stable home and you want to go and you're just going to try it and, and struggle along the way unless you get that lottery lucky break, compared to that same 18-year-old that goes to the military, which I had this conversation with my brother, 
hey, go to the army, four years, you get the VA loan, so that means you automatically get approved for a house. You can rent out that house, rent out those rooms, stay in one of the rooms and they pay for your mortgage. You can get 1% down on a million dollar loan for your business. Uh, so you can buy a business that generates money for you. And then you do those few things. Outside of them paying for your degree and going to school while you're learning and you're a young man, now you come out in four years at 22 with a degree that's paid for, no debt, the ability to get a small business loan and buy a home that's all provided for you because you you sacrificed four years or you gave four years. Now you took your life in your own hands and gave yourself a leg up, right? Because now you have these options. So now you can pursue whatever it is you want to pursue from a stable point of view compared to I'm just going to go out and I'm going to try and figure it out. I'm just going to try and figure it out. Like for some people it works. But when I say life doesn't have to be a struggle, it doesn't if you just make the right choices. If you just, and someone can say, well, what's the right choices, right? Okay, so I'll step back and say, if you just make more calculated choices, I think you can get to your destination without as much pain. You know, it's funny you say that you, you, if you had an open schedule, there's something, an open schedule can sometimes be detrimental too, because now you can put stuff off because you're your own taskmaster. Mm -hmm. So you really have to like reevaluate once you have that open schedule. To-do list fixes all that. Sure. So if you have a to-do list and, and you kind of write what you want to accomplish, you'll be surprised at how fast you can get that to-do list done. If you stick to, because every story starts on a piece of paper or on your screen, you have to write the words down before you make a film, right? If you have a to-do list, and on that to-do list, I have to do laundry, I have to do work, I have to write this page for this script, I have to you know, take my son to the dentist. Okay, if you just mark it off and you look at that to-do list, you'll realize how quickly you're able to get things done, but that to-do list holds you accountable if you're looking at it. Now, with that open schedule, if you don't have a to-do list, you're fiddling around. You're wasting time. For me, one of my greatest assets, because I'm not the best director, there's other directors that are better. I'm not the best cinematographer, there's other cinematographers that are better. I'm not the best writer. I'm not the best anything. But what I am are two things. I'm a grinder. I will grind it nonstop and knock on the door nonstop. And I, I get laser focused. So that laser focus helps out a lot because when I stick to, okay, my rule is three pages a day. I tend to write 12 to 15 a day because writers know like once you start getting in the flow, the story kind of writes itself and kind of goes. And I don't worry about punctuation. I don't worry about spelling correctly. Sometimes I don't even worry about describing a scene. I'll say interior, uh, house in Alaska, fireplace. Jim walks in through the front door, the fire's burning. There is no, the smell of the burning wood permeates through the building. You can see the smoke as it leaves the front door. Jim walks in, the door creaks. For what? And when I shoot it, it's gonna either creak or it's not gonna creak. When I edit it and I do sound design, it's either I'm gonna add it or I'm not. So. If you're going to sell it, you need to colorize it. But if you're going to film it, then don't get caught up on making those words sound perfect. Get caught up 
on how do you make the story that you see in your head out on that paper and then how can you the best to your abilities get that shot who are your favorite asian actors okay so i love jackie chan and i love what he's done and i love how he brought comedy or i would say comedic gestures with almost all of his films um and on the opposite end i would say jet li because in my time in the 90s growing up and stuff you had Jackie Chan and you had Jet Li. Jackie Chan was the colorful fun one, Jet Li was the serious one. And I know there are martial arts a lot of times incorporated into their films, but those two were the ones that I remember growing up watching all the time. So if we gave you let's say $50 right now, can you name 50 Asian American actors? Absolutely not. from the 1960s, 70s, <laughs> 80s and 90s, 50 from all those decades combined? Uh no, I can't. What motivates you to make movies more than anything else? So it's a few things. I really want to influence a generation of American Asians. I want to even if it's to crack that barrier. I want to move that barrier as much as I can. and what i mean by that is like i want to see asian americans in american cinema playing every role i don't want to see us stuck to being the sidekick the the nerdy friend the kung fu karate guy i want us to play every role like in top gun What if the Top Gun pilot, the lead guy was an Asian guy? It's about a pilot, right? Or you know, um even something like Batman. Batman, you could get away with an Asian American just because it's the dark hair, the build. You can kind of get away with that. Um I really want to help even Fast and the Furious, one of my favorite movies of all time. you know if Vin Diesel's character or Paul Walker's character was an Asian American guy be fantastic because now you're just seeing that right uh it changes the landscape of what someone sees as possible when they're able to see it happen consistently not the one-offs cuz you're always going to have the one-offs but when you're able to see big blockbusters with an Asian American in the leading role, the main guy or main female. I think it changes the dynamics for a whole generation because now somebody else can see that and say, "Well, I can do that too." So now you have a plethora of films. You have a, a bunch of different creators and writers and and filmmakers, directors coming out with these projects because they've seen it. It's like um I don't remember the exact name but there was a long time where the 4 minute mile uh that it took for someone to run a 4 minute mile and then once he did it I think it was like weeks or months or 19 days I forget the exact number for someone else to break that 4 minute mile but he had to have broken it first in order for someone else to see that it's possible and then everyone else broke the 4 minute mile So, it's the same thing with film. You have to see 
someone like you break that mold for you to say, okay, I can do that too. Yeah, absolutely, I can do that too. So, you know, it's similar to Keanu Reeves, right? Keanu Reeves is a great example of someone that broke that mold. But how many Keanu Reeves are there? Not that many. So I'm hoping to, to help break that door, whether it's the front door, side door, we built a new house in that neighborhood and, and present to the world that, hey, we're more than just the punchline. And Dean Kane. Yes, and Dean Kane. Dean Kane played Superman. Sure. Great example. So I, I think that if we're able to do more of that, we're able to, to impact cinema in a large way. And if you think about it from a business standpoint, there's so many Asians in the world. Why wouldn't you want to tap into that market full blast? When you were going on auditions in mm -hmm. LA, um, what did casting directors tell you was your look? And did you ever turn down roles because you thought, I don't want to play a stereotype? So I turned down a lot of roles in Atlanta. Or a lot of, I'm not going to say roles because they weren't presented, but auditions where I didn't even audition for them. And it could have probably hurt me where the casting director at some point was like, all right, we don't even want to see him because he turns everything down. But in LA, I was so hungry for any role that I would have taken any role. But it was always the same roles where the same actors were always in the room. In hindsight, it was great because you know, you're getting an opportunity. Because again, no one's gonna create that role for you unless you create it yourself. Because you're not proven, right? I'm not proven. Um, unless something does well that I'm in in this particular role because now there's data associated with that where it's like, okay, well people like seeing this guy play this role. There's no data behind it. Then there's no gauge. And if there's no gauge, there's no money that you can associate it with it because every time you spend a dollar, they want to get two or three back. So the machine itself did what worked for, for hundreds of years. But in order to innovate, we have to innovate. We have to create and become the creators. So you would take any role in LA. What did the casting directors tell you was your look? Do you know? So here's where I had a double-edged sword. When they looked at my picture, they're like, okay, great, bring him in. When I opened my mouth, they were like, he's not the guy. So it worked in commercials and print, but I was never Asian enough. So because I was never Asian enough, when I opened my mouth, uh, they said I sound too urban. Those are the exact words. You sound too urban. You're not Asian enough. Huh. It's, it's interesting because I know when they say you're not Asian enough, I know what that means. I know what they're looking for. And they're right. I'm not that. And in hindsight, I just want to show that everyone is everyone. Sure. We all have common pains. We all have common joys. You know, emotions are universal. So words can be interpreted differently depending on the language and where you're from. 
But a happy emotion, regardless of where you're from, is the same. A sad emotion is the same. So the one thing that's beautiful about films is you're able to evoke those emotions. And a lot of times those emotions span beyond where you're from. And when you came to Atlanta and you mm -hmm. were more established with your day job and, and, and well-rooted, you turned down roles. Was it the same thing? You felt like, okay, now I don't want to contribute to the stereotype being out there. Absolutely, 100%. So when I, I want to say gained the power of creating films. So when I did my first film, it was my film school, right? I learned everything from YouTube, Film Courage. I decided that, okay, I'm going to shoot this film. Right? I was working in IT, I started writing the film during my break, so when I wasn't doing anything, started shooting it on the weekends, casting it, all of that stuff. Is it a great film? Absolutely not. You're either going to love it or hate it. But it taught me so much where the, what you see on screen from first film to second film has such a drastic jump up in quality and style and, and what I'm trying to accomplish that that first film needed to happen in order for me to leapfrog because that did two things. It let me know what I needed to get better at and then it let me know that I can do it again because you did it. So that's why it's so important for filmmakers to get that first one. Don't wait for the right opportunity. Don't wait for the right time. Don't wait for the right circumstances. We all want to shoot on $100,000 cameras and lenses and, and have you know 10 hours to shoot one scene. But when you're an indie filmmaker, you're going to shoot 10 scenes in three hours. You're not going to get that many takes because you only have this location for four. And you have to set up, pack up, shoot, get out, clean it up, make sure you leave it better than where you when you got in. So that stability was, was crucial in allowing me to create. How do you write a screenplay in a week? So I stick to the three pages a day rule. And then if the story just starts flowing, then it'll start flowing on its own and I kind of let that take its place. And then when I start feeling fatigued, I stop. Because when you're fatigued, you're not gonna do yourself justice. So if you think about a week, 90 pages, 15, 20 pages, you can knock that out if you're in a flow. You have to just keep doing it. Every day, just do it. When you find those pockets, what I would do is I'd work, 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 when I'd have a breathing room, because no one's working eight hours straight nonstop unless you're like doing road work or something. For the most part, you have your little break bubbles. And what I would do during my break bubbles is I would shift and I would write. So I'd write like a page or two and then I'd go back to work and then I'd write another page or two and go back to work. So I would be consistently outputting because the story, like as I'm working on this thing and I'm doing this, the story's in my head. So when I'm working on IT, I'm thinking about the story, like, okay, this character can go here. Okay, boom, then I'll go here and I write. So it's just about utilizing those pockets of free time to write. And it, if, again, if you stick to the three pages a day, 30 days, you have a full feature film. But if you did six, now you got it in 15. If you did nine, you have it in pretty much about seven days. And you said that the story, once you get started, pretty much writes itself. Have you ever had it where the story's not writing itself and you know, okay, this isn't going anywhere? No, um, because I'm not concerned with making it like someone else's story. I'm not concerned with, and now we're all gonna pull from what we're influenced by, our favorite movies. Like you're gonna, you're gonna have similar stories, but when I write, 
I like the bad guy winning sometimes. I like, you know, things happening that you just don't see coming. So when I write, there's the only structure, really, there's only one thing that I follow as my guide. And mind you, I'm not a master writer. There's, this, this is not a master class. But the one thing I follow is what's making these characters move forward? What's making these characters move forward? And what I notice is a lot of my films, they all take place within two days. So as an indie filmmaker, it's a lot easier to shoot two days because people don't really have to change outfits. Like people can wear the same thing in two days. So you're able to save that. Um, and you're able to tell a blip of a story within that two days. So if you have to do a period piece or something that takes over a year or two years or you don't know how many days, then there's a lot of things that you add as far as complexity. So I kind of steer away from that and I do like stories that are within a small space. And the reason why I don't get hung up on something is because I kind of just let it go. And whatever happens is whatever happens. Um, if it's received well, it's received well. If it's not, it's not. But what you do know when you watch it is, huh, that's a unique take on it. That's interesting. That's not what I would, like, let's say if you're a writer watching it, that's not what I would, I was taught to write because there should be more back and forth conflict. Like, if I watch a movie and you're able to take somebody out, it drives me crazy when, like, let's say you beat up the bat, like Michael Myers, you beat him up and you get in the car and then you drive off, like, run him over <laughs> 10 times. Like, run him over and then, like, make sure he's good and then drive off. Uh, in my stories, it's very, like, kind of, like, linear. It's like, okay, we're going to get from point A to point D and we're going to go here. And what is, what's allowing these characters to go here? And that's just the process that I use. And uh, for me, it's, it's been working because I've been able to get out stories. Now, whether they're the best or they're not, the only thing that I ever try to do, and this is from an acting standpoint, uh, writing standpoint, filmmaking, is I just try to make things that are entertaining. I don't care about winning awards. I don't care about being the best actor. Can I get you entertained? Can I get you to laugh once? Can I get you to be like, oh, that was cool. Oh, I like that. Oh, no, get that again. If I can get you to do that once within that film, I did my job. Outside of that, I, I'm, I don't chase perfection because I don't think perfection is real. You can have masterpieces, absolutely. But there's beauty in the imperfections. So I think it's more important to get out that vision than to wait for everything to be perfect or for you to create perfection. Because what happens if you're able to create perfection for 90%, but you're not able to finish 100% and you have something that's been sitting there for 10, 15 years and now you've gotten into a point in your life where you're in this rhythm, you're in this routine, and you weren't able to finish your perfection. I think it's better to get it out and get it done and get better and get better and, and, and get master your craft and get better and kind of learn from the mistakes that you make. Evolve, enhance, influence, inspire other people. And with that, you're able to create more. And I think it's more important to have 20 shots at this dream that we're all pursuing than to have one shot. And I like my odds better at 20 shots. How do you organize scenes and structure a screenplay? 
Okay, so 90 pages. I don't really go by arcs. So if you go back to, okay, what's driving them forward? You have this, this mission, right? Whatever it is that drives them forward, as an indie, uh, me writing it as an indie filmmaker, I know that I can't go super crazy because I have to be able to capture it. So I can't do cars exploding, drifting off of a bridge into a helicopter. Like I can't do that. Not to say that I can't, but I'm limited at that moment in time and space to accomplish that. So when I write, I write what's feasible. I write 90 pages. I don't write 120, 130, then I have to chop away. It's 90 pages. I write what I know I can film and what I'm going to film. Um, and then I write locations that I, I'm pretty confident that I can procure. And then once that's done, I break the scenes down by location. So if I have 15 locations in the film, then each location is associated with a scene number. So then now when I go to that location, I know we're doing scenes 7, 29, and 3. And then the actors all know, okay, we're doing 7, 29, and 3 because that's what's associated with this location. So when you break down scenes and scripts this way by locations and the scenes associated with those uh, locations, and you take away the magic, allure of it, and you just put in the work, because in reality, all we're doing is lighting, audio, and we're pushing record. That's it. You take away the thought of, I need 20 crew members, I need a PA, I need, a, I need this, I need that. Take all that away and just think about what is the work. The work is to capture your story in front of the lens to the best of your ability at that time. So once you're able to do that and you're able to break it down into these sections, now you know, okay, I have 15 locations. I have 15 shoot days. So let's plan around these 15 shoot days. We have three scenes, six scenes, two scenes. I have four hours, two hours, three hours. Now you created a plan on how to shoot your film. Now those are just consistent small steps that you do nonstop. Then when you get to that last location and you shoot those scenes, you're now done and you're working on the post-production on editing, color grading, sound design, voices, and you're doing all of that. But as far as shooting, because you created a plan on how you were going to do it and you were consistent about it, you did it. And that's kind of how I break down films. I break down films by scenes and locations and I tie them together. So then when I get a location, if I have to do 10 scenes in three hours, I know we have to fly. There's no, there's no double take, triple take, we gotta fly. But if I have one scene for one location, I can get 100 shots and take my time with it. So you'll have some scenes that turn out better than others because you had more time with it. But it's better to have a completed film and continue to get better than to just try and get that perfect shot. And then now instead of a 16, 15 shoot day, you have a 50, 60 shoot day that took three or four years because you didn't plan. How did you create the character of Ace in Four Amigos? So Ace, Four Amigos uh, pulls a lot of influence from Fast and the Furious. Um, I think any film with cars pulls from Fast and the Furious, but Ace is, is almost like Paul Walker's character, but Asian. Um, 
I just wrote what I wanted to see on screen. And I pulled from the things that I love. One of the main things that I've loved since I was a teenager is cars and the car culture and the car community. And they are so embracive of each other, right? It doesn't matter if you have a $1,500 Honda Civic that you built up in your garage or you have a $80,000 CA Corvette. It just doesn't matter. Like there's love for cars, which turns into love for people. So with Ace's character, I knew, okay, what could I do to move the story forward? What can I shoot that's feasible from where I am currently at in life. I said, okay, his mom is sick and he has to rob somebody. How can I incorporate cars without making it, you know, have cheesy car dialogue and stuff. And my dialogue is very simple because it's really, my, my films are more, I think, story driven and the characters are kind of just developed compared to character driven and then the story develops. So I'm more interested in the story of how did they get from point A to point D, right? How did they get there? And with Ace, I was like, okay, how can I, how can I make him get to where he's trying to get to and incorporate cars? That was the main thing because I had access to these cars, these amazing cars. And I knew that I had a higher level of success with the niche film, right? So like, if I was gonna make a, a film about cars, I know there's an audience, a multi-billion dollar audience attached to that. And I, I own all the Fast and the Furious Blu-rays. I watch like all of them yearly. I'll go and just do a marathon run because I just love cars and I love car films and car culture. So by me, uh, not me, by us creating a tuner film, we automatically had that niche audience because I know they're gonna to wanna to see the NSX, the supercharged BRZ, these cars. I know they're gonna to wanna to see it. So by having that niche audience, we have a greater level and greater chance of success. So then it was just about incorporating my character into that space. How can I get him into a, a action-esque film? How can I give him the biggest chance to succeed? And when I write these scripts and I write these stories, I write myself in mind for parts that I want to see someone like myself play. Um, so by having that connection to his mom, anybody can relate because anybody would do anything to help save their mom or their dad. So that already connects to the human portion of, of who we are. Then to go rob the bad guy, I painted the bad guy as a real bad guy. So when things happen throughout the story or when things happen at the end, you were like, yeah, he was so nasty. I'm so glad they got him. And then for the good guys to win, even though I do like the bad guys winning, in this particular story, it was about the good guys winning and then setting up the sequel. Um, there's a lot of scenes where cars are in the film way longer than a normal film would have had them because I knew car guys just wanna see those shots, so I left them in there. But it was really about just kind of like a hero's journey um, about a guy that is into car culture that saves his mom. How did you raise the budget for Rex Park, Curse of the Golden Buddha? So we, we took that out of our savings. And you know, for that, 
we've been saving for years. And I just had this conversation with my wife. Uh, really, for all of our films, it's like, I have to make this. I just, I, I don't know what it is about me, but I have to make this. And I needed to get it out of my system. And I thought that when I made Rex part, I thought that if I make this, I'm good because I, I made it. I gave myself a shot. But that wasn't the case. But it was the case when I made Four Amigos. When I made Four Amigos, I was okay with never making another film again or not even being a part of the industry again because that was what I needed for my internal soul to accomplish. Um, and then obviously it led to other stuff, but I think sometimes you have a voice in you and you can choose to listen to it and apply action or you can ignore it. And I don't think I could have, I would have regretted life if I didn't listen to that voice that said, you've got to do it. You can't, you can't give up now. Um, you have to do it. So I dipped into my savings and mind you, when we talk about stability, being in IT, it gave me the ability to have a savings and, and my wife working, us working together and, and aligning our efforts and savings to make those films. It was so vital towards the maturity of myself as a creator because even though some people will say it's horrible. Some people will love it. It's low level sex, fart jokes. It's very experimental. Like when different characters come up on the barcodes, it'll be yellow for one character and then purple for another character. Or when my character gets slapped with poop, the barcodes turn brown. Like it was, and there's cheesy, really just bad graphics. It was very experimental that I found hilarious because that's just my sense of humor. Um, my wife absolutely hates it. I have friends that absolutely hate it. And then I have other people that absolutely love it. And I knew that that's what that film was when I created it. But by creating that film and getting the confidence in the, in the schooling of doing, there's something to be said about experience and doing that once you're able to build that confidence and that trust in yourself that you can do it, and you're able to see like on set where you can get better, how you can get better, how you can treat people better, how you can talk to people better, how you can collaborate better because you can't make a film without all of your talent and crew. You just can't. It, it, you can shoot yourself, but it's a boring film. You need the collaborate, collaborative effort of everyone. Um, and that's the beauty of film. It's, it's collaboration. But without it, I would have never gotten to the point where I'm at now, which is 10 steps further than where I was three years ago. Because the films, the national commercials, the print jobs, and I've worked with Apple, Samsung, McDonald's, Subway, like you name it. I, I didn't do anything for my career. It didn't push me forward or anything. It, all it did was give me knowledge um, as to what it looks like on set. How do people kind of do things? I did take that experience and then applied it to my films. Um, but it, it, you have to get that first film out of the way. 
What resources did you already have? So I had the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera 6K. Um, so here's one of the big lessons that I learned on Rex Park to Four Amigos and a Pizza Boy Rig. On Rex Park, I had the Sigma 18 to 35 millimeter lens because everyone raved, oh, this is the lens, the, the sharpness, it's so great. They're right, it's a good lens. But what I realized in making that first film is what my style was and what I wanted to capture. You can't capture with an 18 to 35 mil. I like shooting in 50 mil to 100 mil and in that space. So because I, uh, I realized that, that with the Blackmagic camera now, with the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera 6 6K, you shoot that raw. And I paired that with the Canon L2 series lens, 24 to 105 lens. It did two things. It gave me the focal range that I wanted. And it allowed me to save time on set because a lot of times you're running and gunning when you're shooting because I didn't have to change out the lens. I could just zoom in, zoom out, zoom in, zoom out. It, it changed everything for me because I was able to get a higher quality production just out of the, the, the lens camera setup. Because in reality, yeah, you can have the three-point lighting system, right? Front, side, and the back to kind of separate you from the background. But when you're shooting 10 scenes in three hours in one location, you don't have time for all that. So make sure that that person that's in light, that okay, they're good, and you can be agile. So every time you shoot a new scene, you're gonna move that light, boom. But if you have to set up three lights, you might not be able to get that in time. And if you don't do it that day, you might not be able to get that location again. So there's, there's little things and caveats that you learn from shooting a movie. And having that black magic with that 24 to 105 mil lens and one powerful light, just one. I would tell any filmmaker, we all know lighting is, is one of the most important things when shooting. Spend the money on a real powerful light because that one powerful light would do you more justice than having three lights that aren't as powerful. And I learned that on my lesson on Rex Park because we were shooting this scene on the background, right? And it was really bright. It was sunny outside. And one of the things uh, that I hate, and I did it, and I hate it when I see it, but it was, it's because the tools that I had at the time is for any filmmaker out there, if you want to light it right, you light for the background, you put that, um, uh, you put your aperture settings for the background so it's not overblown and you can see all the details. Then you light artificially your actor in frame. So then that's how you get that really good dynamic range and balance where the background is not overblown and this person is, is in shot lit well. If you light the actor in front and it's so bright in the back, then that means that's gonna be blown out just so you can light this person well. And that tends to not look well in the final product. So lens, camera, one powerful light. And sometimes you can even just do like a little bounce board to just kind of get what's bouncing off. So you already had those in your filmmaking kit, if it will. Uh, I bought those. Oh, you bought those. Yeah, yeah. Okay. so I, I bought the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera 6K because I knew that it was probably the most cinematic looking camera that you could get at the time for that budget. Um, and then I bought the Sigma and then, and then I bought cheap lights. That's how I knew like the eBay light kit, even though there's three of them, it just, it did what it needed to do to teach me my lesson, 
but it wasn't good enough to pr produce the result that I wanted from a production value and quality standpoint. But I did have to bite down and buy the camera and buy the lens. Ah, but then you use them going forward to other Absolutely. productions. Okay, so that helps with the budget going Absolutely, forward. Absolutely, because now it's almost like an investment. You already own that. And there's, there's power, especially in 2022, there's power in owning your gear because you don't have to wait to shoot something. You can shoot it outside in your yard, your park, your parking garage, your friend's house. You can shoot because you own it. So when you buy gear, in a sense, you're investing in yourself and the extension of your capabilities. Do you ever factor in when will this gear be obsolete? When, when, will, I, when will I need to move on? There'll be something bigger and better? Mm. No, because you know you can still watch a DVD that shot in four that that is in 480p final rendered and still enjoy it. And in reality, this is a really good advice for filmmakers. You have to make sure that if you're shooting in 6K, 4K, 12K, that your computer can handle it. Because if you don't have the right GPU, CPU, RAM, and all of that stuff to shoot, it's it's not going to work. So like. With editing Four Amigos and Pizza Boy Rick, I had to buy a 3090 Ti. I didn't want to put that on my credit card, but I had to buy that GPU to edit because once you add color grading, and a lot of times I like to sonically and visually, I like my films to kind of look like 80s and 90s. Really, I like it to look 90s, but sonically sound 80s. Um, that once you convert that digital footage to film grain, you add your color grade, you soften the images so it doesn't have that digital sharp look because it's film, that GPU and that CPU is working. And your computer will have a hard time, even with the 3090Ti, to do 6K raw. A lot of times you have to take that 6K, do a 1080p timeline, do all your editing, and hope that when you render in something like DaVinci that it doesn't crash. So making sure that your computer is, is beefy enough to handle that footage is a big thing because if, if not, don't let that stop you from not filming. But maybe the Blackmagic 6K is not the best option. Maybe the Blackmagic 4K is the best option because you can shoot 4K raw and maybe that doesn't tax your system as much. Or maybe the original Blackmagic where you still get that cinematic 1080p because your system can handle that 1080p. But it's better for you to to be progressive and shoot and make advancements than to wait and wait and wait for gear. Now, if you're going to upgrade from something like the original Blackmagic or and get something better, then yeah, save up for it, plan for it, but don't let that stop you from creating. What does DCA mean? Ah, that's a good one. So DCA is what I live by. Decide what you're gonna do how you're gonna do it. Commit to that decision and then apply action. If you can do those three things, you will always succeed. And that's always kind of been my mantra, right? So if you think about making a movie, filmmaking, I decide I'm gonna make this movie. Okay, how are you gonna make this movie? I'm gonna write this script and I'm gonna break it down into steps and create a plan. Okay, great. Commit. You have to now commit to that plan, commit to those steps that you created, and commit to making that movie. Action. Now I'm moving my body, and I'm, I'm moving my fingers, I'm making phone calls, I'm sending emails, and I'm going to do that to be successful. So 
just by doing those three things and holding yourself accountable to those three things, you can create a film. I always say, like, if, if you can answer this one question, you can make a movie. Can you finish it? If you can look in the mirror and say, yes, I can finish it, then you can make a movie. Because if you've already committed to yourself that you can finish it, then you just got to start. And a lot of people that collaborate with me, and, and they know if I decide, like, hey, we're going to do this, it's as good as done. It's, it's, it's as good as done. Because I don't make that decision that I'm going to do something unless I'm going to finish it. So if I'm on the fence about something, ah, we don't really know what's going to happen with that. But if I'm like, all right, it's go time, we're going to do it, it's as good as done. Which of the three do you, do you struggle with or have you struggled with in the past? The D, the C, the A? The D. I think the decision is the hardest. Because once you decide, you're allotting your life energy to that. And I think in life, we're like a battery. We have so much energy before it goes to zero. So when you decide that you're going to do something, like when I decided I was going to do Four Migos, I knew it was a massive undertaking. I knew it was dangerous. I knew that uh, it was a lot of sweat. I knew that it would take a lot of effort. So I had to decide that I was going to do it. The once you get past D, you've already gotten to the gate of the house. So the committing in action, that's the easy part because you've already made that decision. So it's the decision part. Have you always been this disciplined? Yes. Uh, I always kept my room clean. Um, in order to make movie, in order to make money growing up in Hawaii, we sold food. So my stepmom, uh, she didn't have a degree. Uh, she, on paper, wasn't the smartest. But what she had in abundance was love and common sense. That common sense I've carried with me my entire life. And um, when I would not go to school or say, oh, I don't feel good, she would make me make food. So we would make pasteles and lalaos and ganduri rice, and we would drive from Hilo to Kona, and we would go to all the construction sites, and we would come out and we would sell food, right? And I would have to go knock and go see these people early on, and that's where the no's and the nah or the yes, you know, we would have to, before we could leave, we'd have to sell out the coolers of food that we made. And that taught me a valuable lesson that if you don't want to do this for the rest of your life, then you better get disciplined because you're able to go a lot further in life on being disciplined than you are on just being a wild man. Because behind any successful wild man, he has to be somewhat disciplined because how else did he become successful? And we're not talking about trust fund or anything. You're talking about like, okay, he became successful and now he's wild. He's living his best life, let's say. He still had to show up. He still had to create. He still had to sell. He still had to hire the right people. So he still had to be disciplined uh, to do whatever it is that they accomplished. Did you like pursuit of happiness? I did, but I would never make a pursuit of happiness. So 80s, 90s to me were the, were the best era of film, right? And the reason why I say that is because we had just enough technology 
to enjoy everything, but we had enough time to really enjoy it, to talk with your neighbors. Hey, have you seen this episode of this? Or have you seen, did you go to the store and rent this movie? So you could sit on a film. It was like a gift that you had that you can consume, right? And those films in those eras, in that time frame, I feel like they didn't really have as much of a censor and a, I want to say almost like a responsibility or like a, a filter that there is today. So with Pursuit of Happiness, I, it was a great performance from Will Smith. It was a beautifully shot and executed film. But for me, I like films that take me away from the daily life. I don't want to see struggle. I don't want to see you know, someone broke and they made it out. Like, I don't want to see that necessarily. I, I like, obviously as creators, you create what you can create. So you create the stories that you're able to create in the, in the space that you're in. But if I had $50 million or $100 million, I wouldn't create, you know, a story like a Rex Park or even a Pizza Boy Rick for that matter. I would create aliens versus predators, you know, um, Avatar, I like things that expand the imagination. I like things that take you away from life for a second and, and teleport you into a new world. I like things that 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 take like humans and really just multiply them into like this this different atmosphere. So if you think of Avatar and you think what he James Cameron was able to create with Avatar. I remember watching it coming out of the theater like man, life seems so boring. Because Avatar had these vibrant colors and this different world that it really transported you to. If you think of, you know, something like um, The Matrix, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, like these things are, are so, even though they have human stories, right? They're so futuristic and sci fi and so out there, even like apocalyptic films, that it makes me go, like, oh, wow, that's cool. Like, oh, I love that. Star Wars, you know, anything that that really takes the imagination to the edge of its seat is where I would love to be. Because I feel like as humans, we all live struggle. We all live happiness and pain. I don't, for me, I don't enjoy watching a pure just human story as much because I want to escape when I watch a film like if you watch Top Gun man you're a fighter pilot you're 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 in that jet you know how to fly planes you hear the sounds and 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 you see what they see from the cockpit it's like yes I want to experience that I don't want to experience oh we're struggling we're eating ramen noodles and then, you know, my mom hustled and made it out and then gave us a better life. Because I lived a lot of that, so I don't, I don't need to see it. But if I'm able to witness, oh, the Terminator's coming from the future to take this kid out who's the future leader, and then there's these robots and this, this monster truck is going off of the cliff, it's like, oh, wow, that is incredible. Like, I just saw Ambulance uh, on the plane here, and that is action-packed from like after the first 10 minutes to the end of the film where I watch it like, oh my goodness, like do you know how much effort it takes to make a film that has this much action nonstop for like an hour and a half straight, right? 
I think that you have a greater appreciation for films as a creative that's done it than someone that's only ever watched from the sidelines because you realize no matter what level of film it is, it took so much effort for that film to get made. Whether the execution was phenomenal or the execution was entry level, it took so many hours, heartache, pain, joy, moments to create that project. And I think that once you create that feeling that a lot of, I believe, creators have of why him and not me, I think that goes away a lot of it because you understand how much effort the negativity surrounding films, it goes. You're like, man, it took a thousand people. Like to me, it blows my mind that somebody will pay millions of dollars for something that one person drew on a painting that maybe took them 100 hours or took her 100 hours, but a movie that took thousands of hours, hundreds of millions of dollars, they won't spend 20 bucks on Blu-ray. And it's, it, it almost blows my mind because if you think of subscription-based films, like a Netflix or Tubi or anything like that, or I know Tubi's AVOD, but if you think of what we have access to when it comes to films nowadays, there's so much and it's become so diluted that the value of films are not appreciated even though every single one of us consumes films on a daily basis. They're not appreciated in the way that they should be. Because could you imagine if tomorrow all of a sudden films disappeared? It would be a a lackluster, uh, color would, would become a little more dull. But that's because we have so much access to it. And as filmmakers, let's say we put a million dollars into a film. We want people to watch it so bad to just like, because every film you give like a piece of your soul in it and you want everybody to watch it so bad that you're willing to let Netflix scoop it up for 300,000 and take a $700,000 loss because you know 100 million people can watch it. And hopefully, because they watch it, that leads you to your next project. You're willing to take that gamble. But in reality, it's like your film is worth more than that. It's, It's worth the world in gold. And I think we've lost that as people. We've lost the value of film. I want to see your story, though. I mean, maybe you said that you don't want to talk, but when you were telling me the story, because this is the first time I'm hearing that, I didn't mm-hmm. see that in, in the research that we did. I, I wanted to know more. But again, that's that's your life. That's your story. Mm-hmm. But to me, I wanted to follow that little boy or, or however old you were going to these construction sites. I mean, that's... You know, maybe when I get older, my mindset would change. Uh, I know my mindset now at 34 is different than it was when I was 24. Very different. Um, but I think that a lot of people probably uh, live that story, right? We all, we all struggle in a way. We all have our highs and lows. But I think if I have so many shots 
to take when it comes to films because even if you're at the highest level in a lifetime, like a Christopher Nolan, you only have so many films in a lifetime that you're able to make. So if I have those shots, I'd rather make The Inception. I'd rather make, you know, uh, the, the Jurassic Park. I'd rather make those things that really take with a kid watches it and they see Jurassic Park. They're, they're enamored and just wowed by the story, the visuals and what they see. So then that expands their imagination. So if I have so many shots, I'd rather do those and fail than to succeed and make just a grounded story that we've already seen. How many times have you watched the original Fast and Furious? <sighs> I've watched it at least a hundred times. Um, I love the franchise, right? So it's one of my top three favorite movies. Fast and the Furious, Terminator 2, and Lion King. Those are my three favorite movies. Um, I love everything about car culture. It's one of those things where everyone that's kind of late 20s, 30s, 40s, we all watched Fast and the Furious. We all loved it at its time. And it inspired a whole generation of car lovers. So Fast and the Furious is, is a remake kind of a point break, uh, point break from with Keanu Reeves and stuff. And it follows the same kind of story, except it's centered around street racing. And those cars today, the uh, Eclipse, Supra, RX-7, those are so iconic in today's world. And I don't think they realized when they created the film that it would turn into a billion dollar, 10 movie franchise. But Fast and the Furious for any car lover is probably one of the greatest franchises for car lovers ever to exist because you have muscle cars, you have JDM cars, you have Euro cars, you have exotic cars, you have everything. And you know, Fast and Furious 1 is a masterpiece. Fast and Too Fast Too Furious is so enjoyable. Tokyo Drift has some of the best car sequences and it was shot, you know, and the whole theme takes place in, in Tokyo. And then you have four, five, six, seven, eight, nine that slowly morphs into, uh, I guess, like the hero, espionage, spy, but still have some cars in there. Um, that's what led me to make Four Amigos was after about Fast and the Furious 5, they kind of started steering towards, towards international spies and kind of left the tuna cars alone. And I was like, okay, well, there's a niche and there's a space that is neglected and alienated and I feel like I can help fill that void. So hopefully by this film being successful, because I already wrote the sequel, it's a three film series, the sequel's done and then I know where the third film's going, that it leads to a sequel but it also leads to other filmmakers to make more tuner centric films because if I'm able to do that and say, okay, hey guys, we don't all have to go to space or we don't have to all have, you know, these out of these world events take place within the tuner car space, we can create grounded tuner car movies. Um, then if I can do it, you can do it too. And I would love to watch your film as well because we all have this common love of cars. So if I open that door and people start busting through that, the front of the house and all of a sudden next year there's five tuner movies, I would absolutely be thrilled and delighted because now you have more films that interest you as a tuner lover, right? It's the same as like loving rom-coms or action films or sci-fi space films. 
the more the merrier. It's the same thing when you think about movies and remakes and sequels and prequels. Like, I love it because it doesn't take away from whatever that original was that was your masterpiece. It's just an expansion on that story. What is tuner culture? Tuner culture is a beautiful culture. It's a culture of males, females, different races, ethnicities. It, it doesn't matter. They all come together for the love of their cars. And it doesn't matter if it's JDM, uh, USDM or UDM, Euro, Exotic, Honda Civics. Uh, it just, by you expressing yourself through your car, your car almost becomes an avatar of who you are. It becomes almost like a robot, right? It's an extension of you and your soul. That's why there's so much color. There's so much depth. Um, there's so many different styles of builds. You have all motor builds, stance builds, body kits, um, track builds. You have daily cars. Like I personally drive a GR86, which is a Toyota GR86. It's the second generation of a BRZ GT86. And I bought that because it's lightweight, rear-wheel drive, and it has adequate power. But tuner culture, they like to tinker with everything. Sometimes you'll have anime decals. You'll have suspension with wheels. You'll have, ah, let me throw on a turbo kit, or let me, let me throw on a supercharger kit. Let me add a chameleon wrap with some 20-inch wheels with low-profile tires. Let me do the interior. So there's so many different ways that tuner culture embraces cars, that there's a high love there for everyone. That's why places like um, Cars and Coffee, Caffeine and Octane, Car Meets on Tuesday nights, it's a, such a big thing because you're gathering, right? It's something like the, like what the internet brought for people. There's people that are like you that have the same interests as you. And if you think of your childhood, and I know from my childhood, my best friends, we had one thing in common, and that was cars. My best friend had an MX-6 with a KLZ swap that I later bought from him. I had an MX-3 at, a time and then at the time, and then I bought a CRX. My other friend had a Subaru WRX with an STI um, swap. Uh, my other friend had like a Ford Escort. But we all loved cars. So after school, we'd go meet up with the cars and just have fun, right? Cars are popular and have such a large following and fan base because they're introduced to you as your freedom vehicle when you first get your license at 16. And then they're an extension of who you are when it comes to expression. You're able to show what you have inside on your vehicle and be like, yeah, this is what I drive. This is my width. So that's why it's so important. What makes the Fast and Furious franchise so successful? So we've grown with these characters. We've grown with these characters for now 20 years. From the first Fast and the Furious to Fast and the Furious, now 10. Uh, you know, all of us still feel like the passing of Paul Walker. Like to this day, like we all know, like there was his memorial just took place. Um, we've grown with Vin Diesel, Tyrese, Ludacris, like we've grown with these characters. And you have two audiences now. You have the tuna culture, 
that will always support Fast and the Furious because there's not many other options out there for car films. Like if you think of rom-coms or anything else, there's plenty of films. But for some reason with tuna films, there just aren't many. No one else wants to tackle it for some odd reason. Um, and then they have action. So now you took the formula of back in the day where action films with Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and um, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme and you know Predator. You take that and then now you add tuna cars and you combine them. You have a successful recipe. And I think the last five films did like a billion at the box office or something like that. You're going to win because even if someone's not into tuner cars, they're into the action. But then the tuner car, which is a multi-billion dollar industry, they want to see the cars too. If only now with the later films, only if it's for a little bit. You still want to see the NSX or the, the Supra on a big IMAX screen or in 4K done at the highest level. How does the Fast and Furious rank in all-time franchises, do you know? So I don't know as far as hard numbers, but I know that for me, it's up there with maybe even surpassed it. Terminator. Um, it's up there with Star Wars. It's definitely up there with Star Wars. Um, I can't really say Marvel because Marvel has like 50 films with characters that have spanned 50 to 100 years that have a really deep following that rooted from comic books. And I don't think anything compares to Marvel right now as far as franchises. But I would put it up there, even though James Bond has a longer list of films, I would put it up there with, with really any franchise. And what I base films off of and I know this, this is, might be different for a lot of people, are two things. Enjoyability and can you rewatch it? If you have a masterpiece that you watch, sonically it's amazing, visually it's stunning, editing, everything about it, the film is absolutely brilliant. But when you get done watching it and you got the climax of it, you got the story and you never watch it again, That, that kind of sucks. Not that the film sucks, but that kind of sucks that now, because you've seen the crux of it, you're like, okay, I don't, I don't really need to watch it again. I've seen it, right? For me, something like a Fast and the Furious, Marvel films, Star Wars, Alien, Terminator, you can rewatch those films and enjoy them. It's like Christmas films during Christmas. You can re-watch them and enjoy them. And I'd rather have a re-watchable film that brings enjoyment, whether you watch it yearly or during specific events. Because now that film's living with you. It's growing with you. You're taking it along with you. So Fast and the Furious definitely has that because even if you're only into the cars, you're able to re-watch it over and over and over if you love cars. Um, and I think that's rewatchability and enjoyment are two major things that I think people overlook when they judge movies. If you judge a movie based on, and you take those things out, and let's say you have something that wins Sundance, right? It's like, oh, it won Sundance, it's a beautiful film. But let's say it doesn't do well financially. 
And not to say everything has to do well financially, but in a business it has to do well financially or the whole ship sinks. But you have a beautiful win, uh, film that wins Sundance, but it doesn't sell to a distributor and it doesn't get out to an audience. Or let's say it does get out to an audience, but they don't think it's that beautiful because they're not a cinephile. They like movies that they can turn their brain off a little bit and just enjoy. And then they live with that film for years and years to come. What do you think has more of an impact? It's like that masterpiece, that one Sundance that everyone in the industry claims is the most beautiful film that year. Or that Fast and the Furious film or Star Wars film or Marvel film that you can just enjoy and love and watch with your kids and just have a good time. And then you can do the same thing with that same film next year. Which one has a greater impact? I think the film that has rewatchability and you can enjoy. And you wanted to make your own version. Yes, I wanted to make my own version as much as I could. And I feel like we accomplished that. It's a, it's a tuner film set in Atlanta. You have uh, an enormous collection of cars. You have car sequences that are extended and longer for the car audience than it should have been. For example, if you're gonna cut to the scene, maybe you have one, two, three car shots, and then you go into the scene. I would take that and turn that into 30 shots of cars and then go into the scene. Um, in hindsight, right, as you get better and evolve, you look at your past projects and you're like, man, I wish I could have done this better. Or, oh, I could have did that better. But again, it goes back to the filmmaker. You have to create in that time and space that you're in and do the best that you can, can do in that time with what you have. Because if you don't, then maybe the opportunity and the timing leaves you. And you may not ever be able to create it again because you waited to try and make it perfect. Like there's certain shots where it would have been nice to have a, a huge gimbal attached to a truck and then you get those shots because the shots would have been super steady compared to a little more shakier because you don't have the right gimbal. But that's the gimbal that you have for that shot. So you use it and then you capture what you capture. If you wait to procure that truck, what happens if you're not able to procure that truck. You're not able to procure that gimbal. Something falls through. This actor that you shot all these scenes with no longer can shoot. Something else happens because life happens. So when that energy consumes you and it inspires you to do something, you got to act in that moment because the moment you second guess, you start giving yourself excuses on not doing it. And a lot of times you won't do it if you don't act in that moment. And it's sort of like driving as well can't really you got to just kind of if you're too focused on being scared of something or whatever you could actually end up hurting yourself 100% how many cars did you have in four amigos man a lot so we s2000s vw volkswagen the jettas uh nsx supercharged brz's chargers porsches um Corvette? STIs. We had, a, I don't think we had a Corvette in this film, uh, but we had an NSX racing down the freeway, uh, Mustangs, GT350s, 90 Supras, 2021 uh, Supras, Mark, Mark IV, Mark V. Um, we, you name it, we've had it. And the only legendary really car in that list that we kind of didn't have with, within the tuner space uh, was an RX-7. 
So I, I couldn't I couldn't procure that and I wanted to, but we had probably a good, I want to say 40 cars. Mm-hmm. We had Lamborghinis, a Lotus, uh, Lotuses, Evoras, uh, Aston Martins. We've had a little bit of everything, yeah. And how did you get these cars again? You, you, you put out calls? Yeah, so for months, I knew that we were going to film on a specific date. So about three, four months in advance, I would go to every car meet, every big car meet, small car meet, and I would get emails and I would get contacts. And this goes back to me selling food in Hawaii, right? I would just hustle and you'd have people say, no, I'm not interested or you're a weirdo or whatever. And I would approach everybody. Hey man, I'm going to shoot this this film. Can I get your contact? You might want to be in it. And I would just compile this list over months. And then when it came time to shoot, it was like, hey guys, I'm shooting. This is what I'm kind of looking for. Do you have it? Do you have it? And because the car community and car culture, they're so loving, they were able to embrace me and help guide me uh, and help me bring this film to life. So, yeah. So, so some of them, you gave them the call time and they showed up? And they showed up. Wow. And uh, a lot of the cars in the movie are real cars. A lot of the actors in the movie with the cars, it's their car. Oh, cool. And, you know, I, I was able to add them to the film and let them be a part of film history. Uh, so it was nice. And, and, you know, in the sequel, if I, get, if I get to the opportunity to make the sequel, it dives deeper into tuner cars. And it's one of those things where I just kind of wanted to give back to a culture that gave me so much joy. And because I realized that there was a, a gap there and we didn't have many tuner films to watch, I created something for them to watch. Where can we see it? So Four Amigos now, it's on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's on TVOD. So you can rent it, I think, uh, for $4.99 or $3.99. Um, and then in a couple months, it will be on 2B TV. Great. Yeah. Excellent. What was the strategy you had before you made your first movie and how did that strategy change for your second film? Hmm. Okay. First movie, it was just about getting it out. And with the first movie, you're like, oh, this is going to be on Netflix. It's gonna, you're, you're so optimistic and you need that optimistic to carry you through your career. But the main thing about it was I had to prove to myself that I can get it done. So the strategy on the first one, there was no strategy. It was like, hey, let's make this movie. So I made the movie and I kind of winged it. The whole movie was just winged. I did create a shot list and everything and realized I didn't use anything on the shot list. So now I don't even create shot lists. Uh, I, I look at the space that I have available to me and then I shoot accordingly. So with the first film, it was just about making it, right? With the second film, I knew that I went from step one, if, if, if Rex Park was step one, I knew Four Amigas was step 20. And I knew that's how I wanted to take it. So I had to plan a little more. So first, my thought process, and I'll go over through the whole, the whole thought process. And let me just say this to any filmmaker out there. Your film, no matter if it has a million dollar budget, a zero dollar budget, or $500,000 budget associated with it, your film will be judged against other high-level Hollywood films with massive budgets, with a talented crew. Doesn't matter, it's always going to be judged against that because the viewer, that's what they watch and that's what they know and that's what they're used to. 
So they're always going to judge your film against that. So with Four Amigos, I knew right away I had to up my game. I had to get better and I had to do better. So first, I wrote the script. Then I broke down the scenes. Then I applied locations to scenes. Then I started getting the cast together about who was going to play what. And then we, we stretched it out, right? So once we had all that in place, I procured locations. I got insurance for those locations when we shot because it was a much greater film. And then I got the drivers. The drivers came from my, my months and months and months of procuring drivers, emails, their cars, listing that out and getting that email list ready. Then once all of that was planned, I had my black magic. I had my 24 through 105 mil lens. I had my really powerful light. I had a shoulder rig and I had a Sheen Weevil S gimbal that had no business holding the black magic pocket cinema camera, right? It had, it, it wasn't strong enough, but it's what I had and it's what I used. So the shoulder rig was used for all the, and this was a cheap $60 eBay shoulder rig that was used to shoot all of the talking shots. Everything else was all gimbal lighting. We had our crew, we had the actors, we had the locations, we had everything set. And then we just pounded away and shot and shot and shot and shot. Now, you have to know that when you're shooting, if you're a filmmaker, if you shoot 6K, three to one, you're gonna run out of storage really fast. And then you have to ask yourself, how much storage do you have at home to transfer your footage? Because it's almost impossible for me anyways, to edit footage on an external hard drive that's 6K raw going to your PC. So because I knew that, I shot uh, 6K cropped uh, at five to one. So that gave me a little bit of space, took the bit rate down a little bit, and I had more storage for the film. Then as I shot scenes, I would edit the scenes as I shot. So anytime I had a day off, if I shot on a Sunday, I would edit on a Saturday. If I shot on a Saturday, I would edit on a Sunday. And then that way, as the film neared its completion, all the scenes were already done and then I just had to put them in their sequence. And then that allowed for efficiency. So then once all of that was shot, you're working on post-production. Now, let me say this. Always know when it comes to film, visuals are what you see, Sound is what you feel. So sound design is, to me, more important than the visuals because you can shot something that's shot excellent, lit well, performance as well, but if the audio is not good, it's almost unwatchable. But if you have a film where it's shot decent, but the audio is sublime, you can watch it. Now, if you can get both, kind of like the way Marvel films are, right? They, they have... They're the top tier films nowadays that we're just spoiled with because we get so much from them. They fuse the visuals with the sound and then you get epicness like Titanic or, or you know, E.T. or something. So as an indie filmmaker, focus on your sound when you go into post-production and then focus on your color grade from scratch, not using a LUT. Because if you're just going to use a LUT, then you're almost cutting yourself short when you can really go in and, and customize and characterize that color for your film. 
So once you focus on sound design, there's a, not say controversy. Some people agree with this. Some people don't agree with this. I ADR all my films. And the reason why I ADR that is there's a pro and con. The con is you lose a little bit of performance. The pro is you get that sound quality that's just unmatched. So I ADR all of my films from scratch and I treat audio in a film like I would a song where you separate the stems and your vocals. So then you're able to control the grasshopper noises, the car driving by, the, the bird flying by and the person talking. You're able to adjust and fuse all of these sounds like a blanket compared to recording what you captured from film and just laying it on top of the blanket like a sandwich. There's a very different audible experience that you feel going that route. Now, because I ADR, you lose a little bit of performance, but in quality, you gain five points and performance, you lose two points. So you're still up three. And for me, it's worth it because even when you're on set, you're not worried about waiting for the sound guy to record the sound or to adjust and get in place because when you're doing indie films, it's all about time. It's all about time. I don't even use the board that says, okay, scene one, take three. I don't do any of that because I know I'm going to ADR and I know I'm going to do all the sound in post. I know what clips are going well. So when I shoot, I'm shooting as I'm editing. So I know exactly how I'm going to edit the next shot. So I don't, I don't have to do these long, long takes. So now that all of that's edited in post, you got your sound design, you got your audio, your color grades done. Now you have a completed film. Now, once that's done, somebody would say, well, hey, go get someone you trust to watch it and get their feedback. I don't do that. Because if I'm painting a picture, I'm not asking you to say, hey, should I add this red color here? Nah, I'm the one painting, right? Now, it's different. If you have a $100 million film, you got to make sure that the audience receives it well so you can recoup that money. But if you're self-financing, then you almost have this promise to your inner self that like you have to create what you see. So I don't wait for someone's approval, no agent, no manager, no casting director, no producer, no executive to tell me that the final cut is the final cut. I don't wait for the approval to tell me that I can go make it. I just make it. So once I'm finished with the film and I watch it, I'll watch it with my brother and I'll say, okay, kind of go over it like, okay, no, that was good. Or if, we, if something is so jarring after sitting with it for six months editing or three months, we're like, all right, we got to take that out. Then yes, we'll take it out. But as far as reshooting um, and just changing the whole feel of the movie, whatever comes over me as I'm creating, that's what the universe gave me to paint and what it said to do at that time. Because you got to remember, like, when you create a film, it's your film. It's not Johnny's vision, because if it was Johnny's vision, then Johnny would go write and create that film. It's your vision. So be confident and comfortable with what you create and know that it's okay. It's okay for you to create. It's okay for you to be great. It's okay for you to be the best version of yourself. It's okay to be happy. It's okay for you to mess up. It's okay to, to not succeed on your first try. It's okay 
to get up after you got knocked down. It's okay to fail. It's okay to succeed. It's okay to be who you are as a human being. It's okay. And film is not the end all be all. Life goes on beyond film. Film is what you do. Film is what you create. Film is the, the piece of you that you give out to the world, but film is not who you are. I love that. I love too that you said that it's okay to succeed. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes people feel guilty. Yeah, you, you don't feel like sometimes you're good enough. You don't feel confident in yourself to say, I can be successful too. I can do what Spielberg did. I can be that too. And I think, you know, when they talk about like something like imposter syndrome or anything like that, like, no, it's, it's okay to be like, yeah, I can make movies. I can do it well. I, I can do what they can do at a high level. I can do that. It's okay because cocky is only cocky if you're not able to back it up. Confidence is knowing that you already did it and you can do it again. And you're going to need confidence to get you where your vision is at. Because a vision is only you seeing what is possible if you stick to the plan and you go and get after it. That's all it is. So when I say, hey, it's okay. It's okay to love yourself, right? It's okay to like yourself. It's okay to uh, uh, appreciate what you accomplish. Like there's a lot of times where somebody will say, wow, man, you did an incredible job. And my response used to be, oh, thanks, man. I'm just trying to get like you. But that's such a bullshit response. Because in reality, your response, it's okay to be like, thank you. I put a lot of work. I put a lot of effort into that. Thank you. I I appreciate that you acknowledge that. Thank you. Compared to not letting yourself enjoy that praise. Not to say to get full of yourself. But when someone compliments you on your work, it's okay to accept it and not have to deflect it. It's okay to be great. It's okay. Like, I don't think we hear that enough. It's okay. Hey, if you're not good enough at something right now, put the effort in to get better and be good enough. But you don't have to be good enough to someone else. You have to be good enough to yourself. So when you look in the mirror and you're like, man, I'm happy with what I see then you've succeeded in life. And that goes back to film. It's like, hey, you're good enough. Just keep swinging. How do you prepare for a production day when you're wearing so many hats? You're the producer, director, lead actor, and cinematographer. The only thing I prepare is getting everybody there, right? There's no shot list. There's nothing. I own all the equipment. I own all the gear. I know how to work it. I know how to operate it. I know what I'm trying to capture in the lens because the only thing I'm concerned about is what's seen within that frame. So if I can get everyone there, I can move mountains. So the way I break it down is it's three stages when you think about filming and then final product. Pre-production, creating it, words, lining everything up, getting everyone ready. Production, the fun part, everyone gets to create, have a good time, you get to shoot, all that stuff. Post-production, you do all the the color grading, editing, ADR, sound design, music score, everything. And then you have the fourth phase, which is selling, distribution, 
all of that stuff and getting it out to the world, marketing. So when it comes to shooting on set, I break things down in a very easy, strategic way that's not only efficient, but it takes the pressure off of the actors and actresses. It allows for the freedom of creativity and it's easier on myself and my brother. So when I'm in front of the camera, I'll set up the shot, set up the light, put it at the focal length that I want, and then I'll hand it off to my brother and my brother will go and I'll be like, okay, here, move the camera here, do this. And then he'll go and, and do that stuff. So he's been a tremendous help in allowing me to be in front of the camera and still capture what I need to capture. By breaking it down into segments, and instead of taking this whole page as this one scene, you take a whole page and break it down into four segments, right? Now it's like, hey, as an actor, you only have to worry about these three lines right now. This is what we're gonna shoot. And instead of them having to do nine lines, they did three lines. Okay, now we're gonna cut to this because I shoot as an editor. That saves me so much time and space because I don't get anything that I don't need. The moment we get the take, I know that's the take I'm gonna to use to edit, I move on. I adjust the lights where I need it to be, and then we shoot in sequence. So even when I edit, I know that the sequence is going in line with the scene. So if I'm shooting line 27, we start at the beginning of 27, and we shoot that in sequence. Then as we shoot that and we get you know, closer to me being on camera, because I tend to shoot everyone else first, I get all their shots first, and then I shoot my sequence. My sequences are a lot quicker because I already kind of know what I want to do with the character. And I, it, my shots are less magical because they're a lot more mechanical. Here's the thing. I'm not the best actor, right? I would say I'm probably like an average actor. If across the board, I'm just average. I can do everything except cry on cue. Like I've tried cutting onions, I've tried sticks, I just can't cry. I don't know what it is, I just can't cry. But I can do everything else. So when it comes to me being on camera, I know what looks good, I know what sounds good, I know that if we're shooting close up, don't move your head too much. You know, if you're gonna do action shots, we're gonna go a little wider. I get that. So once I shoot everybody else first and we've captured all of their shots because I'm so um, aware of their time, that when it comes to me, I do my takes in about one or two takes and then we move on. And I know that now that I've said this on camera, you might be able to tell that, oh, okay, he did that like one or two takes because we have to keep moving. We have to keep going. And when you wear so many hats, you have to get out of your head that this is stressful. It's not, like you're making a movie. You're setting people up, you're setting the lighting and you're pushing record. If this is what you wanna do with your life, then it's fun time. So take away the stress because you are what you think. So if you think making a movie is going to be hard, it's going to be hard. But I can tell you, it's not hard. It's time consuming. Anything in life, it's not hard. You're not out there drilling oil in the middle of the ocean. You're making a movie. So if you can break it down into steps and just be consistent, filmmaking will be a lot easier than you think it is. Hollywood likes to, to give you the magic and show you there's a hundred people on set and that it's super difficult. Like, yeah, to make Hollywood's budget 
films, Hollywood level films, you have masters at each section, masters at lighting, masters at cinematography, focus pulling directors, you have these masters. So they're coming out with the master product. You as an indie filmmaker, you don't have those masters on your team a lot of the times. So you have to wear a lot of hats. You have to become the master. What that does is you trim the fat, you know how to streamline your movement and you learn how to get things done. But if you learn how to direct and edit at the same time, your editing becomes so much easier and it becomes a lot more feasible and consumable to digest the entirety of a film. You edit your films as well? Yes. Right? Okay. So I edit my films uh, a lot of times as I'm shooting. Um, with Pizza Boy Rick, I wanted to do it a little different. So I'm shooting first and then I, I'm starting the editing process. I like to try different things to kind of see what works for me. But when it comes to editing, there's two things that I really, that I focus on. As I'm editing, uh, you're scrubbing through the footage, you're seeing what you want, you're kind of going for a particular look. So that's your color grade from scratch. And it doesn't have to be anything fancy. You don't need 10 layers. You, you can color it to get it to look good and then decide if you want to go a little warm, a little cool, you want to just keep it neutral. Different scenes can kind of look differently depending on where you're at. The biggest thing about post-production and editing is sound design. Like, I can't stress enough how important sound is because when I say you feel sound, it's so true. When I say, okay, look, we're gonna edit. I'm gonna take these 10 takes and I'm gonna edit it into the most dynamic scene that I possibly can edit. And there's a lot of times where I see a scene and I'm like, man, I wish I would have did that differently um, because I only give myself so many takes. And because you wear so many hats, you don't have the luxury of really thinking, oh, I'm going to do this with this character. No, because it's like, all right, I'm directing. OK, get in this, get in this. OK, my turn. Action. Then you go. So when I am editing, there's a lot of times where as an actor, right, taking off the other hats as an actor, I would have performed it maybe a little different. I would have let myself get into that zone just a little bit more. But as a filmmaker, I'm like, it's fine, let's move on. So because I'm able to see that take and I'm able to see it in the final timeline on how I'm gonna edit it, what the color grade's gonna look like, how's it gonna turn out, what is it gonna sound like, the editing process becomes the most enjoyable part about the film because that's where it really comes alive. Uh, comes alive. If you think about any film that you love, that's just in incredible to you, there's probably one or two things, I'm gonna say two things, that I can guarantee exists with any film that anyone loves. Sound design, music. And the reason why that's so important is because they give you a feeling to a specific time and place. Like I love 80s, 90s music scores. That's what I love because that's what I grew up with. And for me, those are kind of timeless scores, right? When you're talking music. If you're someone newer, you might like the early 2000s scores because those were a part of you at a certain time in life. 
right? So if you think about, like I don't listen to music that much anymore as I've gotten older. All of the music that I listened to almost stopped when I was like 20, 19, but that's because in those times, a lot of the music is associated with things that I've experienced for the first time. So then as you get older and you don't experience things for the first time anymore, it doesn't have that same memory impact. So as a filmmaker, when you're in post-production or you're thinking about how you want a shot to be completed, think of your sound, think of how you're going to do your sound design. So in my films, a lot of times, there's not empty spaces where there's just dialogue. And the reason for that is because I enjoy sound so much. I want it to be almost like its own experience throughout the story that if you could turn off the dialogue and just hear the sonic waves going without them talking, you could still get a sense of what's happening in the film. So that's why sound design is so important when you're in post-production um, and shooting and editing at the same time is extremely important as a filmmaker, especially if you're in front of the camera. Um, because it allows you to know exactly what you're trying to capture and you don't have to guess. And then you don't have to go through terabytes of footage to try and just get that perfect shot. Do you ever wish though, like when you get it in the editing bay, or excuse me, on the timeline, like I wish I'd had one more take of this? All the time. Oh, okay. All the time, especially like when you have dynamic shots, um, car shots, me in front of the camera, I always know, especially in hindsight, right? Because when you're editing, it's almost hindsight. Like you've already shot it. So now you're editing. I always, as a creator, know that I can do it better. The moment it's done, I know I can do it better. The moment where I'm like, all right, it's a wrap. I know I can make that movie better because I just gained all of that experience points. I just leveled up. I just became better because I just did another project. Um, so there's certain things that you see when you're editing that you don't necessarily see on set because you're thinking of five steps ahead. Or even when you look at the shot, you're like, yeah, that looks great. And then when you look at it on a big screen, you're like, oh, that could have been focused a little better. Or this person, I didn't see that soda can back there, right? You miss those things sometimes. Um, but it's just, it's, it's all part of the, the evolution of you as an artist. It's all part of what you do when you make films. You're always going to look at something and say, I could have done that better.